This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Secret, there is a problem with newspapers in this country and news in this country. When I and those two are not always the same thing, but they so often are. The statistics speak for themselves. There is a local news crisis, and around two newspapers in this country are closing every week, according to a new report. And this suggests that the local news crisis spurred by the pandemic is only going to get worse. Hyper-local communities are being disproportionately impacted by this. And what we've seen as we monitor this is the average poverty rate in what we call news deserts. News deserts are communities where there's no local newspaper, no local news outlet. The average poverty rate in a news desert or a community without a local newspaper in the United States is 16 percent compared to the 11 percent national average. Uh, Penelope Muse Abernathy, a visiting professor at Medill and primary author of this report, says this is a crisis for our democracy and our society. The average median annual income of a home in a news desert is $15,000 less than the average New York, the average uh, household, around seven percent of America's counties now have no local news outlet. Think about that: seven percent of this country has no local news outlet, and around twenty percent are at risk of their communities becoming news deserts in the foreseeable future. And if you look at the surviving newspapers, they're a fraction of their former size, and revenues and profits have significantly declined. In 2005, newspaper revenues topped $50 billion. You know what it is today? $20 billion. Newspaper employment has fallen by around 70%. Since 2005, New Jersey and and Texas have lost the most newspaper journalists per capita. The demise of local news has caught the attention of a lot of nonprofits, and some people are trying to step in to fill that void. In uh, New York, for instance, they have a political publication, which is great, a nonprofit publication called The City. They're doing some great work. but uh, And you have some wealthy individuals. Rupert Murdoch comes to mind that they have said they're willing to lose money in order to preserve a local voice. In New York, for instance, John Katsimatidis, uh, with his ownership of WABC, he's keeping a vital radio local news source alive. But the efforts by John Katsimatidis and Rupert Murdoch and even other folks on the other side of the equation, uh, folks like George Soros, this is not enough to fill the void of growing news deserts. Most communities that have lost newspapers, they have not received a replacement, meaning a print or a digital replacement. According to this report, 
There are 545 digital-only state and local sites, but most employ six or fewer full-time reporters. Still, more digital-only news sites have launched compared to those that shuttered. But the local newspaper sector is in a state of terminal decline. More than 360 newspapers shuttered between late 2019 and May of 2022. At this rate, the country's on track to lose more than a third of its total newspapers by 2025. Newspapers continue to be consolidated by hedge funds and private investment firms. So this is very, very problematic. Margaret Sullivan of The Washington Post spoke about this on the PBS NewsHour about the decline in local newspapers. We have a very serious situation with the local news ecosystem in the United States in which uh, local news in many communities is either withering or dying out altogether. News deserts are springing up. And in some cases, newspapers, which have been very stalwart in their communities for many years, have become just ghosts or specters of what they once were. And citizens are not being well served in those communities by local news outlets anymore. Ed Malthouse, research director at the Spiegel Research Center at Northwestern, talked about the insights that people can learn from local news. As far as insights that would apply beyond uh, you know, the news industry, I think the most important one is that the content you create has to provide um, you know, differentiated, unique value. Uh, to the reader, otherwise people aren't going to want to read it. So what, what we found at, at, uh, with, with news organizations was that um, differentiated content um, makes you want to uh, come back to the site, makes you want to uh, pay for it. Um, if you read commoditized content that you can find anywhere, you know, so uh, there's a million sources for um, national news or international news, um, what the San Francisco Chronicle has to say about, um, you know, the Middle East is probably not going to be, uh, you know, that different than what I get at CNN or any other uh, international source. So what's valuable to me about the San Francisco Chronicle is the coverage of, you know, the local sports teams, the local restaurant scene, the, you know, the city hall. Um, those are things I can't find anywhere else. Newspapers have been described as watchdogs that hold our civic institutions accountable. They're a watchdog on corruption. They're a watchdog in what local government is doing so that people are actually informed about the decisions that are made in their state houses and at City Hall. And they've been described as uh, as watchdogs that furnish that check upon government, which no constitution has ever been able to provide. The Bible of democracy, the book out of which a people determine its conduct. And what's at stake here if we lose the thousands of local newspapers that have historically provided coverage for our cities and states? And I'm curious what you would do here, right? Let me, you're in charge. You can be the head of a newspaper. You can be a congressman. You could be the president. What would you do if we made you dictator of the world? What would you do to save local journalism? Because I don't think there's any debate that this is a major, major problem. 800-848-9222. This is 1-800-848-9222. In my view, this is nothing short of a crisis. America has never existed as a nation without lots of local news outlets. Nothing is easier 
than to set up a newspaper and a small number of readers suffices to defray the expenses of the editor. You know who wrote that? De Tocqueville. In 1835, Democracy in America. The number of periodical and occasional publications which appears in the United States actually surpasses belief. Tocqueville actually found it kind of annoying because the papers were often crude. And yet it was also a source of public order. In 19th century Europe, aristocrats and kings controlled and financed the news, but most American papers were chock full of advertising. No one paper was powerful. Tocqueville argued because there were so many. And he anticipated the debate over disinformation today. He called it self-evident that the only way to neutralize the effect of public journals is to multiply them indefinitely. And now we are in a different world. Now, a lot of people love to blame the Internet. That That's always the common explanation for, you know, they say video killed the radio star. They say if there was a if the Buggles were making a video today, they would say the Internet killed the newspaper columnist. That's not entirely accurate. If you look at ad revenue for newspapers, do you know what their most profitable year ever was? 2006. That was more than 10 years after the Internet became a commercial medium. There's a different explanation for the decline of news publishing, and it started in the mid-2000s. And Matt Stoller, who we've had on this program before, who writes about monopolies, he had a column maybe a month or two ago that made a strong case that Google and Facebook, they built market power in ad markets and they directed revenue away from newspapers and towards themselves. And if you keep that business model in mind, I mean, it becomes a much tougher thing to keep these newspapers in business. One indication that the market power story has some merit that Matt Stoller wrote about is that last year the Australian government made a significant change to policy to undo part of big tech's bargaining leverage. So um, if the Internet killed the news, then changes to ad markets wouldn't matter. But the result of the new law in Australia was a massive increase in journalism. In fact, in Australia today, It's hard to recruit interns at newspapers because there are so many full-time jobs available. Even in this country, as Gannett just did another round of layoffs, now the U.S. Senate, as well as legislatures around the world, they're looking at copying Australia's example through an antitrust bill called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. So I'm curious what you what you think of this, if we should look at some sort of a on Australia style model. See, you have to look at first why the news collapsed, and it has to do with advertising markets from the early 1900s until the early 2000s, 60 to 80 percent of the budgets of newspapers came from advertising. And in the 90s and early 2000s, this model did reasonably well, even with the Internet and all that all that stuff. But a host of mergers culminating in 2007 with Google's purchase of DoubleClick, it changed the situation. So what makes advertising valuable is two things. First is the placement. Is there a pair of eyeballs or a pair of ears willing to look at an ad or willing to hear an ad? And second is data. Who is looking at the ad and are they looking at it when they want to buy something? In 2007, Google was the dominant search engine and DoubleClick was the dominant system tracking people all over the web. 
And this software that DoubleClick had enabled publishers and advertisers to serve ads in standardized formats. The company began brokering advertising, helping to match ad buyers with available ad inventory. So if you had a product and you wanted to meet uh, and you wanted to reach 19-year-old vegetarians living in Brooklyn, DoubleClick had the technology to do that. So when Google bought DoubleClick, it was a major pivot point in the industry. And there were some people who opposed this merger at the time. But when these firms combined, it tipped online advertising into a monopoly. And from 2003 onward, Google rolled up much of that online world. It bought YouTube. It bought Android. It bought Keyhole. It bought AdMob. And Google portrayed itself as innovative. But really what it did from Maps to Gmail It came from buying other companies. So by 2014, Google wasn't just a search engine. That's no moon. It's a space station. If you bought advertising, sold advertising, brokered advertising, tracked advertising, you were doing it on Google tools. My my email, if you send me an email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, it goes through Gmail. And Google tied all of its products together. So you couldn't get access to Google search data or YouTube ad inventory unless you used Google ad software, which killed rivals in the market. And it downgraded newspapers who tried to negotiate different terms. And I think if you look at what Australia is doing, and I'd be curious at your thoughts on this, 800-848-9222, one possible way that newspapers could have fought back would have been to band together and bargain collectively with Google. One newspaper can't stop Google News from imposing new contractual terms or prevent Google from rolling out new ad formatting standards. But thousands of them can if they work together. The problem is that these are independent businesses and collectively bargaining against a dominant firm is an antitrust violation. It's seen as price fixing. So in 2012... Book publishers and Apple were sued by the Department of Justice for trying to create a competitor to Amazon's Kindle. That's an e-book reader. The sword of antitrust was perversely used by the Obama administration on behalf of the monopolist. Think about that. So um, this is really unusual. 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 So this brings us to how Australia started fixing the problem. The Australian competition authorities for years have done things very differently than we do here in the United States because they were ahead of the game when it came to big tech. After the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, that's basically their version of the the FCC. After they did a long series of investigations and reports on how big tech firms operate. Australia passed a law letting newspapers band together and bargain against big tech. And in my view, this makes all the set the sense in the world. And the government there also set certain rules mandating how the bargaining should take place. Newspapers got to form co-ops, but they also got to request arbitration with dominant big firms like Google. So the arbitrator doesn't micromanage the process, but it does kind of baseball-style arbitration. You ever, you're familiar with how arbitration works in the world of baseball? And again, if you're one of my fellow Met fans, my heart goes out to you. 
Both sides give an offer, and the arbitrator picks one of them. This kind of arbitration is faster, and it's less intrusive than standard government regulation. So the ideal solution would be a time machine to prevent Google from becoming a monopoly in the first place, but that ship has sailed. So um, when Australia proposed this legislation, all sorts of people on the Internet freaked out. A lot of tech-friendly lobbyists, they opposed it, obviously, as you might expect. They said the law would place a tax on every single link and destroy the web. This idea of a link tax spread among, you know, pretty credible people. But that didn't happen. Um, The basic argument from some of these advocates was that for-profit media simply isn't realistic anymore. That's not true. There are a lot of arguments about why the Australian law would devastate the Internet. It did not happen. For a time, Google actually threatened to pull out of Australia, and Facebook actually did pull out. But this bullying of Australia by these big tech firms, it generated a whole lot of anger, not just locally but globally. And ultimately, the law went into effect. Google and Facebook caved pretty quickly. And these two firms began cutting deals with Australian newspapers. And none of the scare stories about the new law came true. There were no changes to copyright, no link taxes. There was no devastation of the Internet, no increase in hate speech. There was no entrenchment of big media business models. So big media firms benefited, but so did small ones. And most of all, so did readers of news content. And so did journalists. So as far as I see it, or, or unless you have a different view, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, Australia, as we talk about this local news crisis, Australia, and it is a crisis, I, I don't see any other way around it, Australia has moved in exactly the right direction, the United States has moved in exactly the wrong direction. And I would love to see this co-op incentive model come to the United States, and it would do a couple of important things to newspapers. First, private equity owners who right now are laying off people and squeezing whatever remains of the customer base until the papers they own die, they'll have their incentives changed. They'll make money not by firing people, but by hiring people, not by killing journalism, but by doing more of it. And second, it would allow people to form media outlets and monetize the traffic. Um, So you'd think that this law would be a layup in the United States because, as as far as I see it, this is a no-brainer. But despite the success of the law in Australia, the bill proposing this has kicked up a firestorm of opposition. So there was a weird mix of tech lobbyists, uh, communication and computer industry people, left-wing interest groups like Common Cause and Consumer Reports. They all opposed the bill. They say, they they basically parrot the same talking points that were taking place in Australia at the time. And in my view, these these protests against the Australian bill, have none of them have come to fruition. So some of the opposition is easy to explain. Obviously, there's a lot of tech lobbyists who dislike it. Groups paid by big tech firms to oppose it. Libertarian Republicans like uh, Jim Jordan, they're opposed. They say that this would help entrench the left-wing big media. Um, but, and, yet, and there's all this big tech money. So um, I hope we can figure something out here. If it's not this, then what? 
If it's not the Australian model to save local news, give me yours. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, we are going to talk with Larry Sharp an hour from now. Larry Sharp was trying to run as a libertarian candidate for governor of New York. He's kind of a national figure as well. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast and talk, talking about the future of where we're going. He's not on the ballot in New York. It's the first time in New York since 1946 that we're seeing only two candidates on the ballot for governor of New York. And that's a real shame. You talk again about uh, the monopoly. In the case of politics, it's a duopoly. We're going to talk about the future of the third-party movement in the country nationally and uh, what the, if, if there's any hope for it because uh, I've spent my life in the third-party political sphere and it's very easy to get um, – it, it's very easy to get discouraged and that's a big problem. All right. And then, uh, you know, a story that we, we covered on Friday – And it turned out to be one of the more interesting stories that people cared to call in about was this situation involving the data that shows there are these trends towards retro nostalgia items. And uh, there's all these folks that are interested in VHS tapes. There's all these folks that are interested in Etch-A-Sketch. There's all these folks that are interested in stuff that hasn't been sold for 30 years. So we have uh, Kate... We have Kate Hardcastle, who they call the customer whisperer. She's a retail expert. She's the leading go-to business expert in the U.K. She's going to join us. She's one of the people that's done the research for this. Uh, And we'll certainly take your calls. Right now there's eight, count them, eight open lines, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Singing all about the Huckle Buck. Oh, yes. Uh, A couple quick notes. One, um, this is going to be a program that really tests my mettle today. Because um, I actually, you know, it's one of those things. When I left my house last night, I grabbed my um, laptop bag and I knew it felt too light. And I then realized once I got here that I forgot my laptop charger. So the chances are excellent that uh, I will lose power to my laptop 
within the next 45 to 60 minutes. And that's a real bummer because one of my great strengths, and I don't think anybody, even my, my, my fiercest critics, would disagree with this. One of my great strengths honed from years of being a radio producer and a talk show host has been the ability to look up things very quickly. I can look up things before you can even finish thinking about them and incorporate them seamlessly into a conversation. I also use it to make a lot of notes. So uh, I'm going to have to rely on the good old-fashioned pen, pad and pen today uh so that's going to be a uh, that's going to be a difficult situation for some of us so we'll see where that goes uh 800-848-9222 you know what i was wondering my my wife had a uh, so a, a veggie dog the other day right it's like a soy hot dog i call it a, a tofu pup and they're pretty good i've had them before they're they're pretty good so she was eating one the other day and Interestingly enough, she put on this frankfurter, the same thing that she's done, what what I've seen her do with hamburgers before or veggie burgers. She puts on both ketchup and mustard. And I was doing a little research and I found that this is much more common than I would have thought. I guess it makes sense. They're both sort of ubiquitous condiments that you find at every barbecue and they call this if you combine the two they call it ketchard ketchard i am surprised most of what you find online about this is people that make their own and sometimes they call it much up but people that make their own and they offer advice on how to best mix uh ketchard or much up but I am surprised this never really took off commercially. There are some people that sell this. I think even Heinz did some version of Ketchard for a while. But when you go to the grocery store and you look in the condiment aisle, you see ketchup, you see mustard, you see you see nine different types of mustard, Dijon, spicy brown, you know, all sorts of mustards, honey mustard. You see mayonnaise, you see Russian dressing, you see Thousand Island, you see relish, but you don't really see ketchup. And I'm curious, uh, just seeing how much my wife enjoys combining these two condiments and how popular this style of condiment combining is, why are there not more people that why are there not more people selling ketchup commercially? I suggested to the, her that this might be a good marketing opportunity for her she could sell rachel's brand ketchup so uh she didn't seem that enthused about it but i actually think this is a a, a potentially good idea unless i'm mixing missing something by missing by, unless i'm missing something by mixing 800-848-9222 maybe it's when you mix them together that it changes the taste if you actually mix it together mm. in other words if you just do put you some do this ketchup, no you, i think it's absolutely disgusting I, it's not my thing either I really like ketchup, though. I, I, you know, I love ketchup. I, I didn't start eating mustard till I was older, and it was an acquired taste because whenever I'd get something that had mustard on it, I'd wipe it off, and you still kind of taste it. I love mustard. I, 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 no, now I do. Like I eat on a hot dog. Um, pretty much, that's probably the only thing that I that I eat on. Maybe on a pastrami sandwich, something like that. 
But I couldn't stand mustard as a kid, and I'd always wipe it off. And I hated, you know, every year I went to Florida as a kid, and that any, anywhere outside of really the New York area, they do that. They put, you go to a fast, you go to a Burger King, McDonald's, they put ketchup and mustard on the burgers. So, so why do you think it's not sold commercially that way? Like I said, I think it changes the taste when you mix it together. In other words, just you ketchup, then some mustard. It still holds the ketchup and mustard mm-hmm. taste. Mm-hmm. Once you mix it together, yeah, maybe you're right. it becomes something else. Maybe you're right. 800-848-9222. David is in the live free or die state, a.k.a. the granite state of New Hampshire. Hello, David. Yeah, how you doing? Listen, I caught the last maybe 40 seconds of uh, what I thought you were trying to communicate on, I guess, newspapers and the media. I'll show you whatever they're doing over there. And uh, I think I wanted to say, if I'm following you with very little information on the promo, on the setup, probably in the last 20 years, you have easily extrapolating, you know, 12 to 15,000 newspapers that bit the dust. And so in Germany, uh, going back at least 10 years ago when I was doing some research, I think this is reasonably accurate. I think within uh, their their different states within Germany, they uh, countrywide take about 12 to 15 percent of their taxes to fund media. So well, it's well, kind some, of like a some, fulfilling some people have have suggested something like that here. I I would be reluctant to um, to go with that kind of a solution. And, and, I, and I understand the rationale for it. And I've interviewed people who've supported some version of that. I think in Connecticut, they even proposed something like that at a state level. And the reason I'm reluctant and thanks for the call, David is if media outlets become dependent on the government, whether we're talking the federal government or the state government, um, if they become dependent on the government to stay in business, do you think they're really going to be doing exposés of government agencies or um, digging up dirt on politicians that are responsible for their stream of funding? Also, I think there are some folks that wouldn't feel great. I mean, let's say... You hate Newsmax and you hate the Fox News Channel. Picture a local equivalent, maybe a Sinclair Broadcasting Station, because that's kind of a local equivalent of Newsmax or Fox News. If you're a progressive, do you really want your tax dollars going to fund what you would consider to be right-wing media? And same thing if you're a, uh, a conservative. If you're a conservative, would you really want your tax dollars going to fund the um, local equivalent of the Washington Post or the New York Times? No, I don't think you would. One idea kind of in line with what you're saying was proposed. I think the gentleman's name is Paul Paul Godot, longtime journalist. I could be mistaken because, again, I'm laptopless. But he proposed allowing people to get a tax deduction for newspaper subscriptions. And you could use any you could you could use up to whatever amount of money per cycle. Uh, to purchase subscriptions to news sources. doesn't matter if it's left-wing, right-wing. You choose what you want to spend the money on, and then you would get a that equivalent of either a tax deduction or a tax credit. I don't remember the details of his proposal, but I had him on to talk about it maybe about a year and a half ago. I thought it was interesting, but I uh, maybe maybe that's the way to go because this is a big deal. This is a very big deal. But direct government funding of news sources, as much as I recognize that this is a crisis, I'm not willing to embrace that yet. 
800-848-9222. We have a first-timer. We're sorry. Bob from Maryland. Hello, Bob, listening to us on WCBM. Hello. Oh, thank you very much. I've been listening to you for a while when they took off some other programs on 680 a.m. Mm. at the, you know, 1 a.m. Uh, to 5 a.m., and I think you had a very good uh, point on newspapers in Australia, and, and that was very you know, very valuable. And also, uh, you know, I respect the Annenberg School of Penn. I went to Penn Engineering, but I met some people from Annenberg, including uh, the guy who became dean, John Jackson, Jr. Uh, And also, uh, I wanted to mention, oh, you just talked about ketchup and mustard. Well, last year, uh, the great Heinz for Halloween month said, this is tomato blood on the label. (laughs) <laughs> and they have something different this year. Well, that's fun. What for Halloween? That's 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 kind of festive. I like that. Yeah, last October they uh, put a label calling it uh, tomato blood on some of their. Yeah. Well, I, look, I like Halloween. I, we're going to do some Halloween stuff as we get closer. But I'm all for that. Hey, Bob, thanks for listening. Spread the word for us down there in uh, Maryland, okay? Yeah. Can I uh, email you sometime? Please. Yeah. Do you have my email? Let me. Uh, I'm gonna put you. I'm gonna put you on hold. Kenneth will give you my email. Okay, reach out to me anytime. Um, and if you, you have a pen or anybody else, Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. Dave is in Western New York. Dave, help me solve the mystery of ketchup and mustard. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Good. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for the last twenty years. Oh, well, um, if my wife has a barbecue, she's going to invite you. You guys can sit at the same table. Hey, man, you know, I make a great smoked pork shoulder. <laughs> but, okay. uh, uh, anyway, yeah, uh, I, I started doing this 20 years ago, and I, I mix ketchup and mustard. And sometimes I throw in a little horseradish or, uh, you know, a little relish. But uh, I've always called it either uh, custard or matchup. Well, custard, you know, uh that has uh, a competition, but you know, matchup is kind of like uh, you know the perfect marriage. And uh, I use uh, Weber's horseradish mustard mostly with uh, tomato ketchup. Well, uh, that, and, uh, Dave, but that's one of my favorite condiments. Why do you think, given your fondness for this kind of thing, why do you think you can't go to the grocery store? And find matchup or or ketchup the way you can yeah. tomato ketchup mustard or mayonnaise. Why? Yeah, I've, I've actually never figured that out, you know. And uh, uh, you know, I don't. I've never figured out why uh, a vacuum cleaner company doesn't say, you know, their their uh, uh, slogan should be, "Hey, buy our vacuum cleaner. It really sucks," you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dave, where in Western New York are you? I'm in Lockport, New York. Uh, we're like 20 miles uh, east of Niagara Falls and about 20 miles north of Buffalo. Cool. Right cool. on the canal. Hey, Dave, appreciate you listening. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Pablo is on Staten Island. Hello, Pablo. How you doing, Frank? I'm well. Uh, thanks. I found that the, uh, the ketchup and mustard uh, meld, if you want to call it, uh, 
originates with, I've seen toddlers eating that all the time, little kids. And I think it's because the ketchup offsets the Right, punch, right. I the, think that's why my wife likes it. I mean, it's almost like um, sweet and sour soup or something yeah. like that, where you have uh, simultaneous stimulation of different taste buds. That's right. And when you melt, when you mix them together, however, they don't mix well. Uh, they're better off, like if you've seen that uh, uh, peanut butter and jelly stuff that comes in a jar that has like stripes like a yeah, jelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. That's not that bad. Uh, I think if they can, uh, if your wife can market something out like that out of a tube, like remember the uh, striped toothpaste that had white and right, red around right, it. Right, like right, right. I do remember that actually. Yeah, then you know, that's not a bad idea. Thank you, Pablo. I'm going to, like, see, you know what it is? I have, I think, very little credibility when it comes to entrepreneurial ideas with my wife. One, because I've never had any that have been successful. She, whenever I suggest something, she almost views me as if I'm I'm Kramer, right? I'm Kramerica trying to, um, you know, push a restaurant that lets people make their own pizza pies or a rollout tie dispenser. She's just so used to dismissing it that I think I have very little credibility with her on issues that don't have anything to do with with um, Star Trek radio or New York state electoral politics and maybe even aliens. But beyond those issues, I think she just is so accustomed to dismissing my uh, my suggestions. Step back, son. There's nothing to see here. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, Matt was right. Many a time uh, I would take somebody all the way out in Pennsylvania and stop off at McDonald's and get a burger, and it would have mustard on it with the ketchup. And I always forget, always forget to tell them no mustard. In the New York area, they don't do that. Everything is ketchup. You know, and Abbott and Costello had it right. You, you don't put ketchup on a hot dog. Uh, you put mustard on a hot dog. And you don't put mustard on a hamburger. You put ketchup on a hamburger. Those are just the traditional ways, Frank. And uh, we like tradition around here, Frank. Well, I hear you, Neil. And I hope you had a great Rosh Hashanah as well. But uh, there's a lot of folks, clearly, that disagree, right? I mean, there's some folks, you know, there's different strokes for different folks. It's not my thing. I don't really want to combine but a lot of other people do. My friend Tommy Barlotta says it all comes down to the ratio of how it's mixed. And he, he said you've got to mix it on the spot. Otherwise, it doesn't taste the same. He might be right. Tommy Barlotta is an authority on uh, many things, certainly condiments among them. 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. How you doing, Frank? we got a company out here in Springfield, Ohio called Wobler's. It's a German company, huh. and they make that. They make the combination. They make the horseradish. Oh, they do. And they do make the mustard ketchup combination. Can but, you um? Can you email me? Am I able to buy that online? I'd love to get it. Get some of it and uh, and see if my my wife will approve. Give it the the Rachel taste test. Great. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'll have to get. Go to the store and get their name and all that stuff. All right, yeah, yeah. If you can send me an email with uh, how I can purchase some, yeah. I would love to try that. Great combination. Uh, they made they made this stuff for you know for, for for cookouts in summertime, and just they have different interesting varieties of different combinations. Thank you, Jay. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's uh, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. So I don't know about you, right? But chances are, if you're awake at this time and you're usually awake at this time there's a reason you're awake at this time you're awake at this time because you uh go out late at night 
or because you can't sleep late at night, or as is the case for many of you, you work at this time. That's happened. We did that. Um, maybe we'll do that again sometime. We just asked people why they're awake right now, and we got some really interesting responses. But a lot of people are up waking up. They're waking up at this time because they have to work, and that's certainly the case with those of us here on the show. And if you work these hours, it's tough to flip a switch and on the weekend go back to conventional normal hours. Am I right? So what happened to me on Saturday, same thing that so often happens to me. I go to bed with my wife, I think around 10, 30, 11 o'clock, roughly 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And then 4 a.m. comes around. I am wide awake, wired, wired. I can't even close my eyes. I'm boom. I'm as alert as can be. So I go down, I do some reading, I uh, did a little research, you know, did a little, you know, I have all these tabs open of these articles that I got to read. I've read some of these articles, listening to Curtis on the radio spew one half truth after another. And um, I'm just wide awake. And then my son is awake around six. And so obviously when he's awake, I'm, I'm, you know, attuned to him. So I'm awake the rest of the day. Now, we had plans on Saturday to go out to Long Island. We did that. We went out to Long Island. We, we had lunch with some friends. We visited a, a craft fair that my cousin was running. And then we went to visit my uh, my mother-in-law. Um, then I'm so tired by the time that we get to my mother-in-law. Maybe it's 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon by the time that we get there. I'm exhausted. I'm falling asleep when we get there. So... Um, I'm really fatigued. And we were out there for my sister-in-law's birthday, one of my many siblings-in-law. And um, we had, I I think we had cake. And I basically said to everybody that I need to go take a nap because I'm just, I'm crashing. And there's a guest bedroom. And I went and took a nap for maybe 45 minutes or so, maybe a little more. And I did feel, uh, I did feel bad that I essentially went to someone's house and took a nap, especially family, especially family that I don't get to see as often because they don't live as close as uh, I'd like them to. And then um, my other sister-in-law FaceTimed because she's in Maine uh, reporting on the lobster and the ranked choice voting up there. And my other sister-in-law FaceTimed while I'm asleep. And she says, where's where's Frank? And my wife says, oh, you know, he's asleep. And she says essentially – and she's joking, but she says essentially, oh, what is with Frank? He's always He always comes to our house just to sleep because I did the same thing at her house recently. So I did feel bad, um, and, I, and I apologized uh, later via text message, SMS text message. I said, I hope people don't think that I'm rude by coming over and being antisocial and sleeping. But I think that that little bit of sleep, that 45-minute or maybe even an hour nap, it helps me to be better company – if I'm able to participate and be engaged in the conversation and not falling asleep on the couch. I am curious, though, if you guys that are up at this time during the week, if you have run into that same situation. I was talking to my colleague uh, Dominic about how the rest of the world doesn't understand what we go through. And I said to my wife as I was driving home because I'd gotten that nap in. And then I had the cup of coffee, and my wife said, only half snarkily, she said, you know, I'm pleased to see that you're awake now, because usually whenever we're in the car, she drives because I sleep the whole way, especially on those long trips out to Long Island. 
And uh, she was happy that I was awake. I mean, sincerely, because I got to talk with her. We got to converse. We got to spend time with one another in the car. And usually I'm asleep. But I said to her, honey, you really, uh, the only people that understand what I'm going through are the people that are nocturnal, like I, I, like I do. I know people intellectually think they understand what it's like to go through life being nocturnal, but you don't. You don't. It is a totally different world. So, Matt, you, what did your wife do? She's a, oh, your uh, longtime companion. She a nurse or something? She's a physical therapist. So, she does she work conventional hours or or unconventional? Uh, pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much shift. It's conventional, conventional. Conventional. So what do you do on the weekend? Oh, my God. It's such a mess for me because Fridays come, and in my mind, it's like, oh, I don't have to work. I don't have to go to sleep right when I get home. I can stay awake. So what ends up happening Same, is yeah. I will stay awake until, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. Then I go to sleep for, like, two hours. I got to feed the dog. Then she comes home. And then we'll watch TV, and then by, like, 9, 10 o'clock, I'm falling asleep again. And then I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Mm. And then I'm up for a little while. And then Saturdays, I'm, like, in and out, depending on what we're – usually on Saturdays, I can function. But by Saturday night at, like, 7 o'clock, I'm falling asleep. Yeah, yeah. And, like, last night, I woke up at 5 o'clock in right. the morning. See, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's just – it's very difficult to – Deal with the rest of the world. 800-848-9222. We're to continue with your calls. Any subject that we've covered, you're welcome to comment. You want to talk about newspapers. You want to talk about Ketchard. You want to talk about visiting other people's house just to fall asleep. Uh, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. If time permits, I would like to uh, talk about this Brazilian presidential election that took place and uh, some interesting comments from the Pope as well. But we'll uh, we'll take your calls. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They call it Stormy Monday, but Tuesday's just as bad. They call it Stormy Monday, but Tuesday's just as bad. Wednesday's worse, and Thursday's also worse. T Bone Walker, Stormy Monday. If ever there was a day where this song is appropriate. It is this one. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Pope Francis expressed some concern over the nuclear threat and military escalation in the war in Ukraine. He dedicated his entire address on Sunday to a powerful appeal for an immediate ceasefire. He deplores the annexations. He's calling for respect and the territorial integrity of every country and the rights of minorities. He's saddened by the thousands of victims, especially children. So he's uh, appealing to Putin to stop the war, and he's appealing to Zelensky to be open to serious peace offers. And it is interesting. I do hope that leaders, whatever your religion, 
that spiritual leaders, the Russian Orthodox Church especially, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and leaders of every religion will join Pope Francis's appeal to Putin, Zelensky, and the leaders of every country to do what's right here and bring an end to uh, this spiral of violence and death, as the Pope said. Tulsi Gabbard, she put out a statement, and I agree with her. She said that the silence of the world's religious leaders on this is deafening and extremely disheartening. She is exactly right from my perspective. 800-848-9222. We have a first-timer. Bill in Baltimore, Charm City. Hello, Bill. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for calling. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to say, I'd say I like your idea of uh, mustard and ketchup, uh, what do you call it, combined. I I prefer the golden mustard. There's something about the uh, yellow mustard that's just kind of repugnant. It's too sour. But to each his own. I like I like that on a Hebrew national hot dog. Because to me, they're, they're the best. Well, as you, as you said, Bolt, uh, Bill, um, to each his own. And uh, I, why this is not available in some commercial form that's widely distributed? I don't. I don't know. We had that call from Jay in Cincinnati, who said he has um, he's seen it that they see it, but I don't understand why is it not in every store. Uh, that's what I don't get. Is why when there's clearly a demand to this. Um, now Tommy Barlotta said it's the ratio of mix at, to an individual preference. That's why it has to be done freshly. I get that. Still, you'd think there'd be somebody offering Ketchard or Much Up in stores, and I don't see it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, Frank? Uh, yeah, I work overnight, too, and uh, I was at my sister-in-law's house the other day, and, you know, they made they, it's not my fault. They made the mistake of pulling out the couch, making it into, like, uh, <laughs> so I could put my legs on it, and I just passed right out. <laughs> I think I slept for, like, three hours on that couch, and they were talking crap about me for the, you know, oh, Chris slept the whole time he was here. Like, what, what, I didn't make it into a couch. You made it. You made it too comfortable for me. That's the problem. Yeah, but isn't that a shame that, like, you know, here you you're working odd hours, right? You're trying to make ends meet, and you get you get lambasted by your your family and your friends. They should let you. And my mother in law, she texted me back. She said, "No, I don't think you're rude at all." Hey, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's over. It's all over. Society is over. Um, the just, it's gone, the world has gone too crazy. In fact, they need to re, rename this planet. It should not be called the planet Earth. It should be called the planet Loco or the planet Meshuggah or the planet Ubats because it is nuts out there. We are now living in a society 
where if you have a good job, a well-paying job with a big company, you cannot even quote a movie without getting, without losing your job. You remember the film Arthur? Arthur, Dudley Moore, Liza Minnelli, about a playboy, alcoholic New Yorker. It's an it's a hysterical movie. It's brilliant. Dudley Moore, that is absolutely his finest role, as far as I'm concerned. And there's one line in that film that's now relevant to this discussion. Dudley Moore is hanging out in, I think, a Rolls Royce or some big fancy car. And Dudley Moore, the character he plays, Arthur, says this. What do you do for a living? I race cars, I play tennis, I fondle women, but I have weekends off and I am my own boss. So in the movie, Arthur, I think he's talking to Liza Minnelli there. Um, he says, I race cars, play tennis and fondle women, but I have weekends off and I am my own boss. Well, now, welcome to the year 2022. Where a top Apple executive, a major vice president of a wildly successful company, is now essentially fired. They say he's leaving the company, but he was forced to leave. It's like when you, when you, um, when they call you into the room and say, all right, well, gun to your head, you're going to leave, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to leave. Um, so he's leaving the company after a TikTok video in which he paraphrases that line from Arthur, has gone viral. So Tony Blevins was the vice president of procurement in charge of cutting deals with suppliers and partners. And there's no implication that he was anything but great at his job. So he appears in a September 5th video as part of a series where owners of expensive cars describe their occupations. When asked about his job, Blevins, in an apparent spoof of the movie Arthur, makes the following crack. <laughs> I race cars, play golf, and fondle big-breasted women. <laughs> but I take weekends and major holidays off. Okay. That is quite the career. I'm looking to get into that. <laughs> also, if you're interested, i got a hell of a dental plan. Okay. <laughs> you do it all. You do it all. Yeah. And you participate in this activity. <laughs> Thank you so much. So Tony Blevins, quoting Arthur, paraphrasing Arthur, cracks, I have rich cars, play golf, and fondle big-breasted women, but I take weekends and major holidays off. That's almost verbatim the same line that was in Arthur. Well, some of his co-workers didn't find it humorous. Following, I, I can't even believe I'm going to say this. Following an internal investigation into the matter. By the way, can we pause there? Can you imagine being the person that does that internal investigation? You begin the investigation by watching TikTok, and then you conclude the investigation by watching Arthur. That's some investigation, right? Oh, what what do you mean you were quoting a movie? Oh, it's called Arthur. Oh, jeez. So following an internal investigation into the matter, 
Blevins' team of about a half dozen direct reports and several hundred other employees were removed from his supervision. Apple did not immediately respond to an email message seeking comment, but Blevins confirmed the incident to Bloomberg, saying, quote, I would like to take this opportunity to sincerely apologize to anyone who was offended by my mistaken attempt at humor. Is this for real? Am I living in America in the year 2022? This is what people are getting worked up about? An executive jokingly quoting Arthur? I want you to understand where we've come in society. It used to be you'd get in trouble for actually fondling people and harassing people. That used to be something, and as you should. You should get in trouble for that. You should lose your job for that. Then it got, you, got, you would get in trouble for verbally harassing people at, in the workplace. Then it would be if you would make bawdy jokes in the workplace that people won't like. None of what we've seen here from this executive, Tony Blevins, none of this happened at work. So he's on this TikTok video, and that 25 seconds of him trying to be funny, of him trying to quote Dudley Moore, in 21st century America, at least at a company like Apple, that is now enough to cost you your job? This is nuts. This is crazy. That video that we just played for you of Tony Blevins was shot at a car show last month in Pebble Beach, California. And um, this guy was a 22-year veteran of Apple. He played a big role in reducing the cost of many critical parts that go into Apple's devices. He also helped uh, negotiate Apple's satellite agreement with Global Star, as well as deals over cellular modems and uh, with, with uh, Intel and Qualcomm. Well, he's out because of a joke. This is absolutely insane. I got to get out of here. I got to get out. Is there some place to go? Is there some place I can get away from all of this? This guy was so high up the chain at Apple that he's one of only 30 employees that reported directly to the CEO, Tim Cook. So essentially in the corporate world, comedy is now a crime. The woman who was with him, and um, she didn't seem offended. She was laughing like she was at a Chris Rock uh, stand-up routine. This is nuts as far as I'm concerned. What do you think? Am I am I the one that's crazy here? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This guy who has been with the company since 2000 saw his 22-year tenure torched by a 25-second video in which he's joking around quoting a Dudley Moore movie. It would seem like the folks that make your iPhone, they not only lack good taste in films, but they, you know, have some shortcomings in the sense of humor and the grace department. This is a tremendous overreaction. And you know what I worry about this? Because this now sets a precedent at big companies all over the country. If you can can a top talent like this guy, 
over a harmless pop culture reference. This is a bizarre path for a company that's known for innovation to take. According to a Wall Street Journal profile on this guy from two years ago, he will stop at nothing. He will stop at little to get a favorable deal. He has paraded manufacturers past competitors in Apple's lobby and spurned a UPS contract by sending it back to UPS executives through FedEx. This guy clearly has a gift for doing his job that allowed him to rise to the top of a very, very competitive, uh, very, very competitive industry. Imagine a, a professional football team cutting a Pro Bowl quarterback because he quoted uh, an off-color song lyric or movie quote. This is insane. This is a joke. Although I'm afraid to quote it if it's too racy for for fear of being fired. I, I find this crazy. A guy quotes a movie, a classic, excellent, super quotable film, and Apple fires him. This, to me, is a dramatic overreaction. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Uh, you're welcome to disagree. Uh, 800. Oh, by the way, I just want to make clear. That video, he, he, the guy is not identified. He's not identified by name. He doesn't mention Apple. There's no mention of Apple anywhere in that video. It's not like there's a graphic that says... Apple Vice President Tony Blevins, and these remarks are representative of how Apple thinks. And yet this video, even though there was, it had nothing to do with Apple, probably wasn't even shot on an iPhone. This video sets off an internal investigation, and then poof, the guy's gone. And he apologized on top of this. Now, was this a good look for a big executive to have no um is he a jerk maybe um but after 22 years he doesn't even get a warning he doesn't get one mulligan Uh, 800-848-9222 it makes me want to watch arthur again actually um again every line in arthur is quotable remember the the scene with the moose i think that's hysterical 800 i even liked arthur arthur too which everybody hates 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, Al in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Yeah, hi, Frank. How you doing? I also agree Arthur was a great movie. It was a classic. Uh, I would have to say, as much as I agree with you, uh, the person in the leadership role in Apple, he knows that the Apple uh, hierarchy, they're all progressives, uh, the way they look at life. So uh, I would say he should have knew better. Uh, he made a mistake, and it's his. Uh, it was a mistake that was a big one because he lost his uh, job. Uh, he'll be out of work for some time. So I think uh, I think he 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 has himself to blame. Well, okay, Al, I I hear what you're saying. Look, um, I don't agree. I I think given his service to Apple, he was entitled to a warning. He was entitled to apologize and be able to keep his job. And I'm not so worried about Tony Blevins. I'm sure Tony Blevins has made millions over the years. I'm sure he's got a lot of Apple stock that's valuable. I'm not worried about Tony Blevins. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about the next guy. I'm worried about somebody that's not Tony Blevins 
that gets caught on social media quoting Arthur and loses his job because this is now what the corporate, I hate even using the term, but the corporate cancel culture calls for. I don't think it's right. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Hey, we were also talking about the Pope and uh, his calls for a ceasefire in Ukraine. This is a little bit about what, this is a little bit of the Pope yesterday. How much blood must still flow for us to realize that war is never a solution, only destruction. In the name of God and in the name of the sense of humanity that dwells in every heart, I renew my call for an immediate ceasefire. Let there be a halt to arms and let us seek the conditions for negotiations that will lead to solutions that are not imposed by force, but consensual, just and stable. I think he's exactly right. We're going to talk with Larry Sharp in uh, just a minute or two. 800-848-9222. Jennifer from Boston. Jennifer, I haven't heard from you in a while. I hear you calling Dominic. I was worried I'd done something to upset you. Uh, my father would say, count your blessings, Frank. <laughs> um, real quick, I just want to say the richness of the woke at Apple, Frank. Oh, they're outraged by this. They can't possibly have this, you know, attributed to someone working on this stuff. But they have no problem. You remember Foxconn, right, over in China? smuggling out the notes, slave labor, suicide. Oh, yeah. Where, okay, and then you have uh, the fact that they're doing, uh, you know, you and I have talked about China before, Frank, these companies willing to do anything out of greed. It makes them sick. And the fact, the way they treat the Uyghurs, much less, uh, I mean, just the horrible, horrible things they did before with the one-child policy. And dogs, they the horrible torture they put dogs through over there and then eat them. They boil them alive. It's despicable. So people have no problem with any of that. But you, by the way, Arthur, great movie, The M&M's, you know, <laughs> more Manelli. Perfect. I loved it. And uh, I, I just think it, it's, it, like you said, it's like you're living in an altered universe or something. What actually would make, you know, move them to take, you know, take a step to fire someone. And the fact of what they choose to get upset about it. It really is. It, I don't know. It's beyond my comprehension. So I'm glad you pointed it out. But I just wanted to say what, what doesn't upset them to me is far more troubling than what does. Well, you know. Jennifer, great points on great observations. I, I think I guess the answer is we need to send Xi Jinping a DVD of the film Arthur so that he starts walking around quoting Arthur because he's not going to be able to stop himself from quoting that film. And then maybe that will do enough. That will be enough to get Apple to uh, demand things like an end to um, uh, yeah. five-year-olds being paid uh, six cents an hour. I'm being I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little bit. 800-848-9222. Larry Sharp is here. Business consultant, entrepreneur, and uh, libertarian candidate for governor of New York. We're going to talk a little bit about the future of the third-party movement. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you throughout the program. A little bit later, we'll talk with Kate Hardcastle, the customer whisperer, about some research that shows Americans yearn for nostalgic products. We're going to get into that and a whole lot more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Met a 
girl called Lola and I took her back to my place. Feeling guilty, feeling scared, hidden cameras everywhere. Stop! Hold on. Stay in control. Girl, I want you here with me. But I'm really not as cool as I'd like to be. Cause there's a red under my bed. And there's a little yellow man in my head. And there's a true This is Destroyer by the Kinks. I think that this is actually a sequel of sorts to um, the other Kinks song, um, Lola. And you heard a reference to Lola there, but it's a great song. One that uh, I don't think the Kinks get enough credit for. Hey, uh, I'll tell you, one of my great regrets when uh, we were in the leadership of the Reform Party about four years ago, was not um, cross-endorsing Larry Sharp for governor of New York, and the party ultimately decided to cross-endorse the Republican, Mark Molinaro. And I like Mark, but I think that was probably a a mistake. And uh, sure enough, uh, Larry Sharp, uh, in his gubernatorial candidacy four years ago as a libertarian, was able to get ballot access for the Libertarian Party in New York. Now, the state legislature... And the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, they came in and said, well, uh, we're going to make it almost impossible for minor party candidates to get on the ballot or to remain on the ballot. Goodbye, Libertarian Party. Goodbye, Green Party. Goodbye, Reform Party. Goodbye, Sam Party. And uh, Larry Sharp was going to try to run again this year. But um, at least as of now, he doesn't appear to be on the ballot. Uh, He is a bright guy, a smart guy. And even if you end up disagreeing with him, he is a very, very tough guy to debate. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back business consultant, entrepreneur, friend of mine, and the libertarian candidate for governor of New York, Larry Sharp. Larry, thanks for joining us at such a tough hour. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. The funny part is I just did a uh, a seven-county trip these last three days. I came in this evening, and I'm still here because I'm not stopping, brother. They tried to throw me off the ballot, but uh, I'm tougher than that. I'm I am Marine. I'm tougher than that. No, so Larry, I know. Um, you know, obviously, we're talking to a national audience, and some people may think that a race for New York governor doesn't necessarily affect them, but I think it does because what you've gone through in yeah. New York, it uh, it's similar to what a lot of other third party and independent candidates are going through around the country. Um, explain to me what the status of your your candidacy is now and your attempts to get on the ballot at this point. Well, the most important piece is they should be concerned. And you're right, because what happens in New York State goes to other states. This will be the first time in 76 years that there will not be an independent candidate on the ballot for governor in New York State. Now, you might say, why do I care? Because with the way our country is tearing itself apart, the only way you repair two people or two groups or two friends or two spouses who are fighting is by a third party trying to bridge that gap. And there will be no third party if I'm not able to get ballot access here. There'll be no third parties at all for a generation in New York State. What does that mean? That means there's no presidential candidates either because they won't be able to get on the ballot in New York State either. There's no independent parties, third party candidates who have 50 state ballot access or in New York State for a generation. They should care. 
Absolutely. Now, now well, how did ahead. this yeah. go? Ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. And how did this happen? Well, it happened because the Democrats decided to try to throw the Working Families Party off, and they threw everybody off at exactly the same time. Everybody went away. And could you imagine if you would? I have a garage, and I say, "Hey, Frank, do me a favor. Do you want to rent out part of my garage? It's a hundred bucks." And you go, "Yeah, I need some space." So you take half of my garage. You give me a hundred bucks. Every month you give me a hundred bucks, you can use my garage. Well, now your friend Jim says, Hey, hey Frank, how much are you charging? How much is Larry charging? You go hundred bucks. He comes to me, he says, Larry, can I take the other half of the garage? I go, Yeah, hundred bucks. He gives me a hundred bucks. Then two weeks later, I go to Jim, not you, but I go to Jim and I say, Jim, I know you gave me a hundred bucks and I already cashed it. Um, it's two weeks later, you give me three hundred bucks now, uh, or I'm throwing your stuff in the street. Everybody would say, You're crazy, you can't do that. You gotta at least give Jim a whole month. And I go, no, 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 I never said month. All I said was hundred bucks. You guessed it was a month as if it was no implied contract. Of course it was. I got to give him at least a month. Now, why would I tell you that story? That's what happened to all the parties. The parties that got ballot access in 2018 that I did was for four years. Then two years later, mm. Cuomo and his crew said, nope, it's all gone. And not only is, is it gone, but if you want to get it back, I'm tripling right. the requirements to get it back. And when we went to court and we sued, and we've lost, believe it or not, nine times, nine judges have told us, no, it's totally okay. It's not an implied contract. Sorry, Larry Sharp, you're done. Now, crazy, I'm the guy who keeps going. And I'm the guy who tells them, you're telling me that if Coke and Pepsi were deciding what sodas go into the grocery store, that's fair? Mm. And they would go, no, that's not fair. But in your case, sorry, Larry, no way. And they are purposely removing all the parties. But people don't understand why. In New York State, as of November 9th, one day after the, this election, New York State is going to take $100 million of New York taxpayer dollars and start paying for elections. Your taxpayer dollars are going to pay for a grifter class here in New York from Democrats, Republicans, so they can pay their consultants. And they don't want anyone else getting that money. That's what this is about. It's always follow the cash. Here it is again. Follow the money. It's a good time to uh, be a uh, political consultant. Uh, you're, they're about to get uh, a whole lot richer, as we've seen yes. in, uh, in New York City, where I don't think there's been any demonstrable difference in the kind of folks getting elected. But there has been a uh, tremendous, uh, a tremendous enrichment of the political consultant class, as you alluded to there. Uh, we're talking with Larry Sharp, a business consultant, entrepreneur and libertarian candidate for governor of New York. Larry, are you still planning if you don't make the ballot, which at this point you're not on the ballot? Are you still planning to run as a write in? Is that the plan? Yes. And here's a, this, the, the worst part. The Democrats first threw me off. And then when I got on the ballot, which I did get on the ballot, then the Republicans sued me off. So the Democrats made it impossible. As I then found my way to get back on, the Republicans sued me off. So both parties are trying to throw me off. Now, I'm going back to court again. Now, if I win this, no worries. I get in the ballot and we can make some real impact. Not just that, I can get in debates. The the League of Women Voters has already said that if I'm on the uh, ballot, I get to be in debates if we debate. So I'll get to be in debate and ask people real questions have some real answers. But if I don't, yes, I must do a write-in. And for those of you who are in New York State, if you want an independent voice in this state, you have to write in Larry Sharp on November 8th. And if I get 130,000 votes, we will have an independent party in New York State. 
And that's what I'm trying to do. So achieve. that's interesting. So uh, the um, even if you get 130,000 votes as a write-in, that would give the that would give you ballot access for at least a couple of years. That's correct. The okay. assumption is at least two years. You figure they wouldn't shut me out too early again. But the reality is if we make this happen with the write-in, we've had write-ins win before. The current mayor of Buffalo is mm-hmm. actually a write-in right. winner. Byron so Brown. That's right. We've done it before. Correct. Yeah. yeah and, and you saw in Alaska with uh, Lisa Murkowski, she won as a write-in yes. as well. We've seen it. Strom Thurmond won as a write-in. So we've seen it happen all over the country. It's a, it's a great point if people know about it. By the way, if people want to uh, learn more about your candidacy and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you to learn about you? LarrySharp.com is the only governor website that actually has policies and answers <laughs> to fix the things in New York State. Uh, no Larry, one else does. And that's Larry Sharp. Larry Sharp with an com. E. Larry Sharp with an E. And it's E. And the E stands for electable. Don't forget that. <laughs> Larry, it's no secret, obviously, uh, given my history in the third party movement, that I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. Yeah. There's a lot of people uh, listening to us right now. And they're going to say, look, the conservative party, the working families party, they both managed to get enough votes in order to stay on the ballot as uh, as minor parties in New York. It does show that it is possible for minor parties to meet this criteria. And uh, look, maybe no, it it's, maybe it's difficult. No. But but so, so why is that flawed thinking? No, because the, sadly, you know, I told the conservative party I wanted to actually be on their line. I said, look, if you want a real third party to move forward, how third parties move forward before they become major is they require a personality. Right. Even Lincoln was the personality for the Republicans when they were a third party. You got to get a personality. I offered them. I said, I'll be your personality. I run as a libertarian conservative. If you want to, you can do it. They said no. The reason why they make the ballot is because they don't run candidates. Mm-hmm. They just support the Democrat or Republican. So they're not independent parties. They're parasite parties. If you're a conservative in New York State, you don't have a party. You don't. You got nobody. That's why they don't vote. Why do you think most Republicans in the state don't vote or they go to Florida? Because they don't have a party. So, no, the conservative party just copies whatever Republicans do. The working families copies the Democrats. If you're just going to pick that, I could have done it too. Libertarian Party could have just put their could have put their uh, name on some other candidate. We could have backed Kathy Hochul. We'd probably have a line. Mm-hmm. But why would we do that? We're not a party then. If you just want to have a line, we should just back Kathy Hochul. We don't do that. We'd have a line. Uh, there are a lot of other folks. When I posted uh, on uh, social media, what a shame that I thought it was that they knocked you off the ballot. A couple of people commented and said something to the effect of I'm paraphrasing here, but said something to the effect of good uh, that show that that will prevent him from mucking things up and siphoning votes away from the Republican and helping Kathy Hochul win. Why is that a flawed way of thinking? Two reasons. Number one, if you honestly believe that Lee Zeldin has any chance of winning, you have a mental disorder known as <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. That is what you have. The, 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 the Republicans have not won a statewide election in this state. Nothing, not senator, not governor, not AG, nothing in 20 years. The idea that this is the year was a lie four years ago, six years ago, two years ago. It's a lie now. Stop believing that lie. The state is three to one Democrat to Republican. This state will go gold before it will go red. 6,000 New Yorkers, 6,000 changed their registration, their, their driver's licenses to Florida in one month. That's 200 a day. Republicans are flocking from this state. Florida used to be a swing state. It's not. It's red. Why? We sent the Republicans there. There are not enough Republicans in this state 
for that to happen. That is a fantasy. Please stop believing the lie. It is a lie. Republicans win locally all the time. If you have good Republicans that you like locally, please vote for them. But to even imagine that they could win in a statewide election, they're going to start doing the January 6th stuff. They're going to throw Lee Zeldin under the bus for that. They're going to turn him into Trump. And the one thing that unites Democrats more than anything else is Donald Trump. Come on. We've seen that before. They're going to turn him to Trump. He's going to lose. The data is in. I've run before. I do polling. 25% of people who support me are registered Democrats. 40% are registered Republicans. 35% are something else or registered some other place or new voters, whatever the case may be. Nobody else can make that mix. This state will go gold before it will go red. Please be smart and let's create a coalition against the establishment. What's going to happen when Lee Zeldin loses? He's going to go off and get a cushy job and we're not going to see him again. We already see Nick Langworthy. He already went and got his cushy job. He's already going to become a congressman. They're all going, they're all grifting off of Republicans in the state and getting cushy jobs. By the way, I'm the only guy who wasn't getting a government check to run in 2018 and I'm not getting the government check now. I don't work. I just do this and I lose money when I do this. Why? Because I care. I don't want to lose my state. I cross this state every single year, all 62 counties. And I don't go from Republican fundraiser to Republican fundraiser. I go to diners, to vape shops, to gun stores. That's where I go and I meet people and I know who's going to win this thing. And sadly, it was either going to be me or Kathy Hochul. And since the Republicans decided to throw me off the ballot and not back me, by the way, I asked them to run in their primary and they told me no. They would not let me run in their primary as libertarian. I told them I'd run in the primary and win and have three lines. And they went, no, we're going to pick the guy who has the most money so we can grift and we can take more money off Republicans and lose yet again. I hope I was clear in what I'm saying. If you get a third party, you can create an actual coalition. You can actually affect both parties. You have a better independent party. You will have better Democrats and better Republicans because they'll have to move towards the people who want real freedom. We don't have that. The people tuning in, we're talking with uh, Larry Sharp. Uh, He is uh, running for governor. Hopefully he's restored to the ballot, but uh, he's also still running as a write-in candidate, even if he's not. Uh, Larry, just to extrapolate this to to the broader picture about third parties nationally. You know, one uh, yep. conversation, private conversation uh, that we had the other day was basically you said that the the only way for anybody that's interested in turning this state or this country around is not for all these independent groups to work in their own silos. Reform Party does yep. this. Independence Party does that. Libertarians do this. Then Greens do that. We need to have a broader coalition uh, that yes. works to reform the system. And it did remind me of sort of the coalition that the center-right parties put together in Italy to elect their first yes. uh, right-wing government in, in a long time. Tell me exactly your vision for the future of the third party movement, not just in New York, but around the country. Absolutely. Look, I've been very open with you. I was trying to get you to help me make an independent party before I tried to get Howie Hawkins Green Party. I literally told him, I said, please don't run. I'll give you an AG slot or something. Let's get together and find an answer. I want to unite to give me I'll give you something. Let's work together to just all, if we all work together, we can make real impact. Nobody wanted to. The The issue was they all wanted to fight, and the conservatives got mad and sued me off the ballot. So I think we have to. I'm backed, by the way, by Yang's forward party. Now, there are many issues as a libertarian that me and forward don't agree with, but we do agree with something. 
We have to have a third party or this entire nation is screwed. We've got to make a change. So I think what we do is we get an independent party and then we let people come in who want to run against the establishment and they pick our party to get ballot access. They don't have to fall in line with the Democratic and Republican establishment. And if, the, if you lean more left, if you're in a city, you'll lean more left. If you're out in the suburbs, you'll probably lean more right. It's fine. Let's just run against the establishment. We've been begging for an anti-establishment candidate since 2008. That's why Obama won. That's why Bernie almost won a Democrat party. That's why Trump won. It wasn't because they were the smartest or the savviest. It's because we thought that they were going to be the outsider that we wanted. Well, you know what? Let's make a party for the outsider. And do you think that's actually viable, not just on a state level, but nationally? It's the only way. Think about it. Everybody, Justin Amash started the Liberty, uh, the Liberty Caucus in the Republican Party, and he left. It, it can't be done. Bernie Sanders is, is a socialist, and he can't even make the, the, the Democrats become like him. They hate him. You got to have a third party. I don't care where you are, what part you're in, unless you're an establishment person. I want you to think about this for a second, one more time. The people who are on the ballot now, both of them in New York State, there are people who've been in government for over a decade. They've been getting a government check for over a decade. Where's the independent guy? Don't exist. In 2018, uh, when I ran, five people running, four were getting government checks. I wasn't. That's where we are. And judges don't care. They're totally fine with it. This system's broken. The judge is like, well, it's the law. Well, if you don't let me on the ballot, how can I change the law? Mm. Yep. If you can't give me a party, how can I change the law? 800-848-9222. We'll try and squeeze in a couple of quick calls if people have questions or comments for Larry Sharp based on what he's saying. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's a real shame that um, that he's not on the ballot as of now. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you really believe strongly in your candidate, you should want as many candidates uh, on the ballot as possible. Be confident in your guy or gal. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Hi, uh, hi, uh, Frank. How is everything? Okay. Everything's great. Uh, everything's great. What's on your oh. mind? Yes, I'm just listening to what um, what this candidate is saying. I believe that in another elections, I will vote for him. But at this moment, where we are fighting so much crime in the street, we have to do everything that we can to have the Republican candidate that we already have. Because I believe that um, we cannot continue being divided. The country is the one that is at stake. Yeah. So, Marion, let me um, let me add to your comment as well. Larry, a lot of people like Marianne concerned about crime. Also, in New York, there's a very big issue with congestion pricing. And a lot of folks view Lee Zeldin as the best candidate to uh, fight Kathy Hochul's uh, what they consider soft on crime approach. And uh, Kathy Hochul's uh, guarantee that congestion pricing is going to come around. Explain to people like Marianne why they should consider writing you in rather than um, going with Lee Zeldin because of crime, because of congestion pricing, because they don't want to see gas-powered vehicles abolished in 2035. I'm going to give you a couple things. Number one, the most important, Lee Zeldin is not going to win. Please stop believing he is. They told you that lie in 2018. They told you that lie in 2014. It cannot happen in this state. I know around your friends, they all say he's great. He's not going to win. I travel this state. It is impossible. That's number one. 
number, so Kathy Hochul stuff is going to happen. And when Lee loses, you can bring me back a month after this, Frank, and I'll show you, you'll never see him again. He'll go off to a law firm and he'll go have some cool, cushy job. It's what they all do. You will never see them again after they've taken your money. I'm the guy who's been here for five years. So I'm the guy who, if you let me win just, just my ballot access, the press will be talking to me. I'm the guy who was on Joe Rogan. I'm the guy who was on Dave Rubin. I'm the guy who was on Glenn Beck. The press will talk to me. and the press talks to me, my issues and my solutions will come to the forefront. What is Lee Zeldin's uh, uh, um, answer for crime? His answer is more cops and fire DAs. You want the governor firing DAs? No. My answer is local people can recall their DAs. I don't want the governor deciding who my DA is. That's why I vote for my DA. Mm. I want them to be able to recall it. That's my plan. You want to fix bail reform? Very easy answer. What is Lee Zeldin's answer? No bail reform. What is Kathy Hochul's answer? More bail reform. Mine is the right answer, which is focus on first-time offenders. All of these crazy people who are doing crazy stuff, they're all multiple offenders. Let the first-time offender get a second chance at life, put the rest of them back in jail, and have the corrections officers to help. I'm the guy who actually goes out and talks to and visits people in prison, to include the corrections officers. My father was a corrections officer at Rikers Island, and my mother was an addict and a felon. I know both sides of this. Congestion pricing. Lee Zeldin has no answer. And Kathy Hoko has a bad answer. I have the right answer. We should be taking all these bridges and tunnels in New York City, and we should be leasing out the naming rights. It shouldn't be the RFK bridge. It should be the Google bridge, the Pepsi bridge. They will pay tens, hundreds of millions of dollars for these bridges. That will pay for this and get rid of tolls. But I'm still not done. We should at night have freight come into New York City on the on the lines in the subway that aren't being used. Freight comes in. They pay for it. They rebuild the MTA for free. It's their marketing budget. As they begin to move in, we got a better, cheaper MTA, better bridges, less trucks coming into the into the city because now it's coming in freight trains. Now we have less congestion. We don't need congestion pricing. I want to help the working poor in the middle class. Nobody else does. I gave you actual <laughs> answers. If you ask Kathy Hochul, she would just go, oh, Lee Zeldin's evil. If you ask Lee Zeldin, she goes, Kathy Hochul's evil. I gave you actual answers. I'm the only guy who will. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi. Yes, I agree with you that we need to have more parties on the ballot. And one of the things I'm very upset with Mary, uh, not Mary, the other one, Andrew Cuomo about is how he made it so much more difficult for third and fourth parties to get on the ballot. And he knocked off the Green Party, which I think he was very afraid of. Um, But as a libertarian, can you give me a little idea what you believe as a libertarian? I know libertarians generally oppose social benefit programs like welfare, like Social Security. What is your position on the New York Health Act, for example, that would provide health insurance to all New Yorkers? Yeah, um, I'm I'm not against these things. What I am against is government becoming a monopoly and controlling it. What's happening right now in New York City, if you if you live here, you know that the wealthy don't use insurance anymore. The wealthy go to doctors who don't take insurance. So the best doctors are moving away from Medicare, Medicare, and even most insurance um, plans. And the best doctors are going just to the wealthy. This two-tiered system is what's going to happen if this if if we create what uh, basically a, a statewide plan. So the wealthy keep their doctors and everyone else gets gets managed care. A better plan is to make it to where individuals who we know how much money we're going to get, we actually allow them to have their money on a, on a debit card up front. 
What does that mean? They get to use private doctors. Private doctors see that, then private doctors begin to understand how they can get more money. They begin to lower their pricing and then open themselves up to a better style of healthcare for everybody. We keep the government plan for catastrophic, but we allow doctors to be able to service more people better. How do I know it's going to happen? If you look at the secondary medical market, meaning non-essential, things like uh, LASIK eye, eye, eye surgery, uh, body enhancement, cosmetic dentistry, when you allow people to have a safety net, which the government should be a safety net, but also go out and they see the money that can be there, in every case, you've had accessibility go up, price come down. When I was a kid and, 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 and LASIK eye surgery came out, it was so expensive, you got one eye at a time. Now everybody gets it. I want everyone to have good private doctors and this, that system will take years. But if we begin by keeping government, I'm not against government. I don't want to get rid of government, keeping it for catastrophic, but encouraging the private sector to open up more, you will have everybody having better care instead of a two-tiered system. Well, Larry, last happen. call, last call. Uh, Jeff on Staten Island. Jeff, you're on with Larry Sharp. Mr. Sharp, I got to say you have passion and as much as I'm probably going to vote for Lee Zeldin, he seems Ooh. passionless. I say, go Ooh. for it. <laughs> Ooh, don't do it. Don't vote for Lee Zeldin. Don't do it. Write in Larry Sharp. I need 130,000 votes, and I'm telling you, it is not going to make a difference in this election. I know everyone goes, this election's the 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 worst of uh, the most important. I hear that every election. Let's assume that I'm totally wrong. I'm totally wrong, and Lee Zeldin wins. Awesome. Lee Zeldin's going to have a Senate against him, an assembly against him. He's going to have to do executive orders, and those executive orders will be will be countermanded by the assembly in 30 days. Hey, uh, That's uh, how it works. Larry, real quick here. O.B. Murray, who you may know, is a longtime uh, Republican political consultant. He ran Bob Turner's successful campaign for Congress. He uh, worked on uh, – he ran Keith Walford's campaign for attorney general four years ago. He's run campaigns all over the country. Mm-hmm. He has a question. Uh, O.B., uh, what's your question for Larry Sharp? Hey, Larry, two things. First off, the quick question on the uh, – getting rid of the DAs. You can't, there's no recall in New York State, and they're not going to pass that in the legislature. I don't know how that gets through. And with that in mind, why not just run a Republican or Democratic primary then and do it that way from the uh, beginning? Two things. I did try to run a Republican primary. They told me no. So I absolutely well, want to be a Republican. Yeah, right. Yeah, but if I become a Republican, then I lose. That's the point. You can't win as a Republican in the state. I don't care how good of a consultant you are. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. Gonna so why would I run as a Republican? Larry, Larry you're not going to win as a yes, Republican I, to begin with. If if the Republicans had allowed me to run in the primary, I would have won their primary. And if you're going to give me twelve million dollars, you gave Lee Zeldin, I'm the next governor because I don't give anybody anything. You have to raise it, Larry. You know that the parties aren't raising money; the candidates raise the money. The party raises the money because he's on the ticket. Are you kidding me? I raised a half million dollars. You and I both. I raised a half million dollars twice. Without being on a major ticket. You put me in a major but, ticket, but so, uh, oh my God, I'll Larry, raise tons Larry, of money. Larry, to, to Obi's point, though, let's say, you know, obviously this is a Democratic state. One of the most conservative yes. guys that I know is uh, is Dove Hykens. He ran mm-hmm. uh, for office as a Democrat in every election that he ran because he knew that he was more likely to win as a Democrat. Yes. The same can be said of yeah. Kalman Yeager, council member in, uh, in Brooklyn. Why yeah. not run as, say, a Democrat on a Larry I Sharp agenda? That. Hundred percent. I consider the problem is Kathy Hochul was unbeatable, and so I did consider. And and actually, believe it or not, um, I thought of it when Cuomo ran. Cuomo was unbeatable. 
and we they proved it. I mean, Cynthia Nixon couldn't beat Cuomo. She raised, she was wealthy herself. She was popular. It was impossible. The only way I could get to the final, um, to, to election day was either in the Republican primary, if they had let me run, or as a libertarian. That was my only way. And I got to the, Larry, I got Larry, to the, they changed the, the registration end. rules. You could have changed your registration in February when you found out no. You could have, it was much, years ago, it was different. They changed the rules of registration. You could have changed your registration by February before the convention and gone onto the ballot as a petition candidate for the Republican primary and gone that way. You chose not to. And that's true. You would have I only mean, needed 15,000 signatures instead of yes, 45,000. Yes, in theory, that is correct. And we thought about that. But the problem was, then I had to get, but then I had to get 45,000 if I lost and to, become, to get on the ballot. I didn't have the cash and the infrastructure to do so hey, to, I, I, to get 60000 Larry, it I got to run. Impossible. I'm, I'm way late here. Uh, Obi Murray, thank you. Larry, uh, give me the website again if people want to learn more about your candidacy, if they want to donate or, or see some of your ideas, even if they don't end up voting for you. What's the website? It is LarrySharp.com. If you want change, vote for me. Write me in. You'll get change. I'm still here. If you want the same old thing, Vote for either of them. You get Kathy Hochul with no change. And I do think it's interesting uh, the kind of model you're talking about of a coalition of minor parties around the country that would certainly be interesting in all sorts of elections. Uh, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, Connecticut, all around, you know, our listening area, Nevada. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on my discussion with Larry Sharp. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Are you going to take me home tonight? Oh, down beside that red firelight. Are you going to let it all hang out? Fat bottom girls, you make the rocking world go This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Those of you that are Queen fans will recognize this song. Those of you that are talk radio fans, especially in the New York area, will remember this was Lynn Samuels' theme song. And uh, for years, that's what I knew it as. <laughs> it's uh, Lynn Samuels' theme song. Uh, we're going to get back to your questions, your comments, your thoughts, observations in just a moment. We have um, commendations coming up in about five minutes. I did want to highlight one item for you, courtesy of the Journal of Clinical Psychology. Do you remember your mother telling you nothing good happens after midnight? Well, apparently she was right. After midnight, the mind undergoes some dramatic changes. We're more likely to see the world negatively, to make impulsive decisions, and to exhibit risky behavior. That's why people are at greater risk of violent crime including homicide at night. There are also higher levels of substance abuse after midnight, more suicides at night, and this also affects our food choices, making us turn to foods we shouldn't be eating, carbs, fats, highly processed foods. So I think this goes to show you what we're doing is legitimately a real public service. Uh, so um, that's that's the story. 800-848-9222. You want to find me on Twitter, you can do so, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. 
And uh, we're on Facebook as well. It's Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. And, um, you know, I I am pretty sure that on Twitter I'm in the process of being shadow banned. So you have to go and look for me on Twitter. I'm not going to come up in your feed. Find me and you'll see some of the interesting things that I've been tweeting at Frank Moreno. And we also have a Facebook group. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on the show, or if you want to talk about any of the subjects that we feature on this show, just go on Facebook and type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. All right. I uh, want to get to as many people as we can here. Leo on the Upper West Side has been pulled, holding patiently. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. I have, I'm going to have a short uh, thing on, on mail. And think for your wife, but let me first tell you one thing uh, with the firing of this of this guy, the vice president. In the communists, we're not there yet. Whatever over here happens, you just get dismissed or you get you get fired. Over there, you went to jail, jail time. Like Rosenbar would be for sure in communism in the, in the jail. And after that, you would never hear about her. They would not give her a one light in the newspapers. Or one minute on the TV, and uh, Frank, there was, a, for example, a young singer, 22-year-old man, who was publicly talking against communism. They let her go for concert to, to England, and on the way back, when she was returning, they just stopped her on the border, on the airport. They took passport and says, "You're not welcome." There was a, with her band seven citizens of Czechoslovakia. They just kicked them out and say, "You're not coming back. Stay in England. We don't want you here." Okay, Frank. Yes. Do you know? Do you know in the Home Depot or AutoZone they have this epoxy epoxy uh, glue? It's in like a. Uh, it looks like syringe. The the medical syringe. Yes. Yes, I've seen for, that. for injection, but it's two next to each other with a plunger. If if the same would be uh, like double size, big size, maybe three next to each other, when you pull the plunger out, you can refill it with mayo, mustard, and third component, and you can mixing it different sizes next to each other. Leo, that's uh, thank you. That's not a bad suggestion. I have seen ketchup and mustard in the same bottle. I have seen that. It's not common, but I'm talking about a mixture, a, a, a whole mixture. I'm trying to get my wife to embrace this. Rachel's, uh, Rachel's tatstered, right? All right. Uh, until, hey, we're going to do commendations in just a moment. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you as well. Until then, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to do commendations in just a minute, but a couple of people have been patiently holding. I'm going to try and get to their calls. This is one of those days where I I have four hours worth of stuff left to get to and only two hours to get to it. There are just some days where we need an extra hour. This is this is just we have too much stuff that always happens on a Monday. I, I stock up with stuff for the weekend 
and then news breaks throughout the course of the program that we have to get to. We're going to get to as much of it as we possibly can, including commendations. But first, let me say hello to Joe and Ron Konkama, who's been patiently holding, and he he suffered through Curtis's uh, presentation out on Long Island Friday. Uh, the least we can do is uh, allow him the opportunity to be heard. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, great to talk to you. I went to that thing, um, and um, my wife thinks you're more personable. Oh, well, <laughs> she got Sounds like a very per, you know, uh, uh, perceptive lady. Uh, Curtis was very nice. You know, uh, I didn't give him a hard time, but uh, the reason why I'm calling, um, I agree with O.B. Murray. I mean, that guy that was on, Larry Sharp, he's got no clue, and I got so aggravated listening to him. I mean, right now, with a month out with the election, uh, I think having him on the air, and I know you have, he has a right to be on the air, but you have a lot of confused voters right now, and they're on the fence, and Writing in a vote to him is taking away a vote for Lee. I mean, I, I support Lee Zeldin, and I, I know you said you were considering to voting for him. Um, I just think that with the crime and the way New York is going, we can't keep going down this route, Frank. I, I want to go to the city. I want to go to Broadway shows. Mm. I'm afraid to go in the city. I'm afraid to explore New York because it's dangerous. I mean, look what happened to that poor EMT that got stabbed and mm. murdered and it's just scary. And uh, if, if anybody's listening out there and knows me from Ron Konkuma, um, vote for Lee because he's the only chance we got to make New York safe again. Frank, great show. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, thank you, uh, Joe. And by the way, if you want to see a picture of Joe from Ron Konkuma with Curtis, he actually posted it in the Facebook group. You can see the photo that he posted on uh, Friday or Saturday. Uh, just go search online on Facebook. Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, radio, fans and haters. Without further ado, I know a lot of you look forward to this moment all week long. I know I do. It is, oh, by the way, we're going to talk about um, the enthusiasm that people have for retro nostalgia items coming up in about 20 minutes with Kate Hardcastle, who they call the customer whisperer because she is the go-to expert um, on anything business in the U.K. She's going to join us live from across the pond. Meantime, though, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I have to first begin with a posthumous commendation for pro wrestler, politician, and hostage negotiator Antonio Inoki. Antonio Inoki was a Japanese wrestler, but he was very big here in the United States. He fought um, Muhammad Ali, and he was revered for never being afraid of a challenge. Uh, He fought Muhammad Ali, Ali boxed, and Antonio Inoki wrestled. He negotiated the release of hostages with the Iraqi government. He was called the fighting spirit that burns. He died at the age of 79 after battling a rare disease. I believe it's pronounced amyloidosis. Um, He was the he ran New Japan Pro Wrestling, which has been a great wrestling company for decades. His achievements in pro wrestling and the global community. I know this is it sounds like a cliche, but it's true in his case. His achievements in the wrestling ring and in the global community are without parallel, and he will never be forgotten. He was born in Japan, but he spent most of his childhood in Brazil, and it was there 
that he found a passion for pro wrestling and he took on the name Antonio. And he was a legend. He reached global fame in, I, I guess the apex was in 1976 when he faced Muhammad Ali in, in, in Tokyo in a boxer versus wrestler match. And this match was credited for pioneering what's known today as mixed martial arts, where a fighter uh, was allowed to use any style of combat. Out of the ring, he was known for his attempts to forge peace and diplomacy through sports. He and Ric Flair went to North Korea and wrestled in North Korea with Muhammad Ali, by the way. Muhammad Ali went with them, and um, it's very funny. Ric Flair has a very funny line in his book after seeing how crazy the North Koreans were and uh, the fealty that they're expected to show to the um, leader and how the translators would take whatever the athletes were saying and turn it into some praise for the North Korean leader, who at the time was, uh, I believe it was uh, Kim Il-sung. Might have been Kim, Kim, um, Kim Jong-il, but I think it was Kim Il-sung. And Muhammad Ali actually turned to Ric Flair on that trip and says, no wonder we hate these mother effers. <laughs> I mean, Muhammad Ali, ravaged by Parkinson's, goes and makes the trip to North Korea, and he still is able to whisper that to Ric Flair. Well, Antonio Inoki, he, he arranged that, that whole thing. And in 1990, he was instrumental in freeing 36 Japanese hostages that were held in Iraq. He made more than 30 trips to North Korea serving as one of Japan's few links to that country. He could only do it because he was such a big international superstar. And that that event with Ric Flair, the they called it the collision in Korea, 380,000 spectators. 380,000 spectators. That was considered at the time the biggest pay-per-view in pro wrestling history. So he retired as a wrestler... Um, over 20 years ago, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. He's technically considered WWE's first ever Japanese world champion. So um, he was an amazing man, an amazing athlete, an amazing performer, and a guy that had a passion for helping people. And he's going to be missed. And uh, 79 is way too young, way too young for anybody, but especially someone that's given as much to the world and as much to wrestling fans as Antonio Inoki has. And I, I'm going to miss him as a, uh, as a personality and as a performer. I, wanna, I hope I'm pronouncing this gentleman's name correctly, but I want to give a commendation to Eliud Kipchoge, who broke his own marathon record. He crossed the finish line at the Berlin Marathon last weekend, broke his own record. Um, this is absolutely incredible. This is a guy that has ran, run a whole bunch of marathons and, um, he was, uh, I mean, this guy keeps breaking the record for fastest person to run a marathon. I mean, um, it's just incredible what he's been able to do. He has been one of the finest athletes in a long in the world for a long time now. 
And um, here he broke this record for quickest marathon, new world record time of two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds. Absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Speaking of athletes, I I didn't realize we had so many athletes today, uh, but just sometimes it works out that way. I have to give a commendation to Pete Alonzo. You know, there's so much attention being paid, and rightly so, to Aaron Judge, who's having an incredible year, one of the best years any baseball player's ever had. But there's been so much, not only is he poised to break the American League single-season home run record, but he's still leading in the Triple Crown, as I understand it, which is incredible. But you can't ignore the accomplishments of Pete Alonzo. When he hit his 40th home run the other day, he is now the only New York Met in history to have two 40 home run seasons. Think about that. Think of all the great hitters that have played for the Mets over the years. People like Mike Piazza, people like Todd Hundley, people like Howard Johnson, people like Daryl Strawberry, Bobby Bonilla, Eddie Murray, Tommy Agee. Um, and he is the Ed Cranepool. Pete Alonso has just made Met history by becoming the first player in franchise history to have 40 home runs in multiple seasons. This is incredible. And as far as I'm concerned, if Pete Alonso does nothing else, and I hope he does a lot more, the polar bear is already one of the greatest New York Mets to ever put on a uniform. And he seems like a great guy besides. I want to give a commendation as well to John Cena. He's not just a wrestler, but an actor. And he has set a new record. And this has nothing to do with marathons. This has nothing to do with home runs. This is a much more important record. John Cena has set a new record for the most wishes granted through the Make-A-Wish Foundation with 650 wishes. So the Make-A-Wish Foundation is a group that I'm very passionate about. I've given them money. I've volunteered my time as an MC to some of their events in the past and would happily do so again. And they help fulfill the wishes of children who've been diagnosed with a critical illness. And John Cena is the most wished-for celebrity, meaning children between the age of 2 and 18. They really want to meet him. They really want to uh, have a visit from him. And he has granted more wishes than anybody in the entire history of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So I think this is extraordinary. And uh, it shows you the kind of person John Cena is. I also want to give a commendation to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They donated $1 million to hurricane relief efforts in Florida. And I think that's great. And now that money is going to be matched by the uh, NFL Foundation. So that's great. I realize they make a lot of money. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I'm sure the NFL Foundation has a lot of money to spend. And they're talking about billions of dollars worth of damage that's been done through this hurricane, um, Ian. And I think this is a great thing. That uh, It may be a drop in the bucket, but you know what? It's a step in the right direction. So I say uh, good for you, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I do commend you. I must also commend weightlifting. New research into weightlifting has revealed two insights that the practice is able to strengthen the connections between nerves and muscles and that this strengthening can still happen in the later years of life. 
we actually start losing muscle mass before the age of 40. And it's caused in part by a reduction in muscle fibers that happens as motor neurons, which are cells in the brain and spinal cords that tell our bodies to move, break down. This decline can't be stopped. But this new study shows that it can be slowed down significantly. According to the study's results, weight training makes the connections between nerves and muscles stronger, protecting the motor neurons in the spinal cord, which is essentially, which is essential for a well-functioning body. So if you are getting older, consider weight training. And um, it has benefits for everybody, but it especially looks like it has some benefits for older folks. I have to give a commendation to green bananas. Green bananas. I uh, actually passed some green bananas. You know, these are the unripened bananas. At my mother-in-law's house on Saturday, and I had to send her this article. Green bananas can help maintain the balance of electrolytes within your body. This is what, this will help keep your kidney functioning properly. So many people only eat bananas after they are very ripe and yellow. You should know green bananas are full of potassium. They're full of fiber. And this is essential for people that suffer from digestion problems, intestinal problems. And if you eat this food raw, it fights constipation, fights diarrhea, even if cooked. And green bananas are easy to digest. It's an aid in digestion. It regulates blood pressure. It improves nutrients and absorption. Great for diabetics. It's a boost for your metabolism, and it's high in B6. So don't wait for those bananas to ripen. You can eat them now. You can eat them now. I have to give a commendation as well to Jimmy Carter, who celebrated his birthday yesterday, 98 years old. Jimmy Carter is now the oldest living former president, 98 years old. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of criticism of Jimmy Carter's presidency. I think most of it is justified. But Jimmy Carter has got to be one of the greatest former presidents ever. His work as a philanthropist, his work as uh, an activist with the Carter Center, his work as a makeshift diplomat, his work, it really, he has played the role of elder statesman more than anybody. And in addition to being a peanut farmer, he was a Navy lieutenant before going into politics. And it's easy to forget what life was like in the South, especially in Georgia, in the 1970s, when he was kind of making his bones in politics. But Georgia and the South, segregation was still very much, and racism was still very much around. And it was still very much a potent political you know, enemy. And uh, Jimmy Carter was very progressive on racial issues at a time when it was very difficult for a Southern Democrat to do so. And he was way ahead of the game on that. Much more progressive, much more forward-thinking than people like uh, Bill Clinton were, for instance, or Al Al Gore. And um, really, when you think of somebody whose whole career has been associated with human rights, um, not just as president, brokering things like the Camp David Accords, but 
pushing for peace across the globe. I have a lot of admiration for Jimmy Carter, and uh, I'm glad that he's still with us. Hope he's with us for many years. Happy birthday, President Carter. I want to give a commendation as well to Otis. Otis is the four-time champion of Fat Bear Week. That's right. Um, Otis is Alaska's biggest celebrity, both in popularity and in circumference. Known by the number 480, Otis is a magnificently rotund brown bear and the reigning king of Fat Bear Week. Fat Bear Week is a March Madness-style competition that's organized by the National Park Service and Explore.org in which thousands of people tune in via live web cameras to vote for their favorite chunky bears at Brooks Falls in Katmai National Park. This year, the contest brackets are going to be announced today with the voting for the fattest or really just the most captivating beginning on Wednesday. Otis won last year's Fat Bear Week, in which nearly 800,000 votes were cast. That made him a four-time champion. Well, now he is poised to win one more time. So I'm wishing the best of luck to Otis. He's certainly been an inspiration for the people and the bears of Alaska. And I finally want to give a commendation to my friends Jill and Victor Vitale, uh, good friends of mine for a long time. We were out on Long Island on Saturday. And they live out there, so, you know, we try to hit as many stops as we can. We visited my cousin's craft fair, Jason and Joey, to benefit their children's school. And we had lunch with Jill and Victor. And wouldn't you know it, I had three drinks at that lunch. And this was an expensive place. Not not cheap. Very, uh, you know, especially by Northport standards. They bought our lunch for Rachel and me. And we, we had soup. We had an appetizer. And, a, a, you know, not an inexpensive meal. And three drinks. And they bought our, uh, our our lunch. That was really nice. I'm usually the guy that buys lunch. And uh, to have lunch bought for you once in a while is pretty nice. So I have to give a whole uh, an enthusiastic and hearty commendation to Jill and Victor Vitale, along with my gratitude. All right. We're going to talk with the customer whisperer in just a moment, Kate Hardcastle is a uh, leading retail expert. She's going to join us live from the UK to tell us the hot items that Americans miss most. Retro is back. We're going to get into what that means, what items people miss, and why with Kate Hardcastle straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Good 
This is Come On Eileen by Save Ferris. Of course, a band that took its name from the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I believe I used to have on VHS. And uh, I'm not the only one that had a robust VHS collection. And uh, there's still a lot of folks that put a lot of effort and a lot of time into acquiring VHS tapes. Andy Campbell Furcus is a VHS collector, and he was explaining to News 5 Nashville what's so great about VHS tapes. A lot of stores got rid of their VHS sections. While they did that, I took them. <laughs> I love that feeling of popping in the tape like physically. It's just like a thing that you don't get with hit and play on something on YouTube. I grew up with it. It was a part of my childhood, my teen years. And for me, it just didn't go away. And it's not just VHS tapes. This country is swarming in nostalgia. VHS tapes, Etch-A-Sketch, Polaroid cameras, mood rings, lava lamps. These are all popular products on America's vintage purchase list. Three in ten consumers miss the iconic TV commercials from the 90s, and a quarter miss buying things through infomercials and catalogs. What is driving this thirst for nostalgia? Well, we talked about some of the items that you miss on Friday, and I was overwhelmed at the call volume on that. Somebody that uh, may have an idea of what's going on here is Kate Hardcastle, a.k.a. the Customer Whisperer. She's a retail expert and the U.K.'s leading go-to business expert. Kate, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I was loving the music there as well. Well, thank you. Hey, even if uh, even if the things that I say are inane and make no sense, hopefully people will at least tune in for the music. Sure not. It sounds like you're making some good points there. Isn't it fascinating that we're actually delving back into our past for a bit of comfort and security? And I think this research from Martis is so interesting because many of us are taking full advantage of everything that digital, digital has to offer, right? We use it to make our lives easier. I mean, don't you love the fact that if you don't know the name of a song, you can kind of hum a bit and you've got something that will tell you what the name is. I mean, you probably know all the songs anyway, but I sometimes get confused. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I get confused you do, all the you time. You that too? Yeah, oh, no, no, all, all the time. So, uh, so tell us about this research, Kate. This was a study of 2,000 American shoppers, and what did it reveal? Well, first and foremost, we want to take a bit of a time machine back to some of those good old stores. And one of these means a lot to me, too, because the physical stores Americans want to happily travel back to includes Radio Shack, Blockbuster, Circuit City. But here's one for me. 13% would go back to Borders. I loved the Borders in the States when I used to come over. Oh, there was, I, I felt like I was so sophisticated having a coffee and reading books. Did you, any of those stores that you would go back yes, to? Yes, yes. In fact, even before I saw this, uh, this uh, research, uh, I was asked what businesses I missed most, and two of the ones that I cited were Borders Books and Walden Books. I had a lot of great times there, and I was sad to see it. Uh, but I guess one question that a lot of people are going to ask, Kate, is, if Americans miss so many of these stores like Radio Shack, Blockbuster, Borders, Circuit City, why are they all gone? If the uh, consumer appetite still exists for stores like uh, Circuit City and Borders, why are they not here anymore? 
Well, look, you're right to point that out. And we do very much shop emotionally, but we also shop in trends. And it's very cyclical. It kind of goes round like the vinyl on the turntable in about 20, 30 year cycles. So if you've seen the kids these days, including mine, I hasten to add, you know, wearing the Guns N' Roses T-shirts, all wanting to understand what a Walkman was, you know, this is very much about the cyclical fashion trends that we see coming round. And the same will happen with stores. We will have high streets. We will have malls that are reinvigorated again. But they've got to go through this evolution of change first. So they won't fit for purpose. But I think a lot of the driver for this research through Amartis, because it makes so much sense, is the fact that we do feel comfort through things that feel good to us. They're known to us. They're part of our childhood. And I think that's why you see a lot of the brands being mentioned here that are, are popular. The idea of lava lamps that you mentioned, the VH, VHS tips, is all, it's all back. And I think marketers these days have to understand and have to be on the pulse of how we work as consumers. It's so important. Now, Kate, if um, it, people see this research, which I find very interesting, and some folks may think, well, haven't um, throwback items haven't nostalgic items, retro items, always been something that the American people were were interested in? After all, there's a reason antique stores have done so well uh, throughout the history of this country. Is this really something new, or are we just changing the era of the items that we're nostalgic for? I think that's a great question. You're spot on to highlight that there's always been those antiquities and things we can visit. I was in an antique store in Hollywood last week. I could have spent all day there. It was fantastic. But I think the thing that's different these days is it's easier to connect with. It's easier to reach because of social media. And social media has become the great amplifier in all of this. And this is where the digital with the real world, the analog with the digital comes together to bring physical items back into it. It's the idea that many of us love those iconic TV jingles that many of us miss buying through catalogues. And I think we're going to see more and more of a resurgence there. Some of it's the good stuff as well, you know, sustainability worries, younger people wanting to get involved with the environment by making do and mend is a great initiative and change. But some of this is that comforter. It's the idea that we're going to see a different version of a high street, a different version of retail stores, but some of it that will also nod and tilt the cap to the past. Hmm. I know I have not seen this program yet, but I know the show Stranger Things is very popular. And some people have said that Stranger Things is in part what's driving Americans taste for all sorts of products that were big in the mid to late 80s. Is that is that is that true from where you're observing? Absolutely. And also TV shows like Friends, which is pretty much paid on repeat these days, is bringing back the psyche of the 90s. We've seen a lot of 90s fashions through. So, yes, 80s, Kate Bush very much coming to fruition. New generations of people listening to this music. We saw her shoot to number one in the charts again. It's really a case of understanding and the sense that every generation will want to discover. We all feel that we need to find our path and our destination and a very much case of exploring things that feel new and different to us. I did exactly the same with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and became obsessed with it, much to my parents' 
amusement. <laughs> and I'm watching my children do the same now. And that's why this conference is so great that this organisation is doing. It's called Power to the Marketer. But really, we're all marketers these days. We're all out there sharing the message. We're all out there almost creating our own environment and sharing things that we love and care about. And that's where the digital comes into it. But the fact that my children want a Walkman for Christmas, I honestly, it just makes me howl with laughter. I think it's brilliant. So uh, tell me tell me uh, exactly what Power to the Marketer is. I know it's uh, an event, uh, the, the, there's a Power to the Marketer festival that's taking place here in New York tomorrow. What exactly is it? Well, it's a festival that's going to talk about this research, but also highlight how we as consumers interact with brands. And it's run by Amartis, who are this company that help connect the dots between us as buyers and those organizations selling to us, the brands and the retailers. And the reason I think it's fascinating is twofold. One, I think, yes, we are all marketers in a way. We've all got social media platforms. We've got our stories to tell and our hobbies and interests. But I think we're becoming savvier as customers more than ever. Now, it always happened in the States, also with the coupon cutting and everything's been done so well there. But I think we've got a younger generation, a new generation out there knowing how to navigate, just how to get the best deals and how to find brands that are authentic too. And I think it's really interesting. They're going to be hearing from everyone from Jimmy Choo right through to Disney and Adidas. So there's a lot of brands there all setting their stall out to talk about it. It's free as well, so I love oh. anything that's free. You don't get you don't get the customer whisperer not loving a bargain, and <laughs> there is no greater bargain than free. So, uh, if people do want to go to this, how can they do that? Do you know? Yeah, you can click onto the internet and search for Power of the Marketer and look for a artist. You'll go straight to all of the links, hmm. register there. You can sit at home from the comfort of your home. Dial into the sessions that are of interest to you, or indeed there are physical huh. events all international well, as well. But you know, I'm going to be definitely listening to the Gibson guitar ones. I am a rock and roll freak, so I can't wait for that one. <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm going to try and log into this uh, as well. This is usually around the time that I go to bed, but I will stay up a little later to at least see some of this. Two quick things that I am hoping that you will bring up in one of the panels that you're that you're on for this power to the marketer festival festival and both of them are selfish but i think they're both fitting within the kind of theme that you're talking about one they discontinued coca-cola discontinued a year and a half ago my favorite soda one of my favorite sodas which was big in the 80s and that's tab now you've got to bring up the fact that with all this resurgence of interest in the 1980s culture, you can't really you can't really explore 1980s culture or the 70s for that matter without bringing back Tab. We, we need these power to the marketer folks to bang the drum for bringing back Tab. I'm running your campaign for that campaign manager. Love it. Wonderful. And two, I, this is a serious question. You alluded to the resurgence and and the comeback of vinyl records. Uh, Last year, there were more vinyl records sold uh, than have been sold in the last 30 years, a record that they broke the previous year and the previous year. Every year these days, it seems like more and more vinyl records are sold, which back in 1985, nobody ever thought that would happen. I would love to know your take and the take of your colleagues that have studied this research. What would need to happen to plain old regular terrestrial radio to experience the same kind of resurgence among young people that vinyl records is is experiencing right now? 
Well, I think that's a question for all of the people on the panel because I think it's a brilliant media. And we always get reminded about how important radio stations are when we need things from our community. And we've seen that. The fact that you are there as a supportive voice for so many communities is definitely something I'm going to pass on to my kids. I hope they always tune in. It's so important. But let's see if there's a resurgence to be had too. Absolutely. Uh, Kate Hardcastle, the Power to the Marketer Festival. If you just Google Power to the Marketer or use any search engine, uh, Power to the Marketer, you can register for free. It's going to take place uh, beginning tomorrow. It's a three-day event. It's uh, pretty exciting, and uh, they'll delve into some of this research that we've been talking about. Kate, it was great to talk with you. Uh, Hopefully, I'll, I'll see you in studio whenever you're in New York, okay? Would love it. Absolute honor. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any portion of, of our conversation in just a moment, we're going to talk about something interesting. What it is, I'm not quite sure yet. I've got it narrowed down to the last five. I have now an app that allows me to spin the wheel of topics. You remember we were spinning the wheel of topics. Uh, we actually used to have a, a physical wheel, but now... It's really neat. We have a, it's an app. It's called Spin the Wheel Random Picker. So I'm going to spin the wheel in commercial, and um, we are going to, you know, find something interesting here. Okay, uh, all right. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Girls on Film. If you ever want to know what kind of bumper music we're playing, uh, just join our Facebook group. We post the songs and the artists there each and every day. Uh, just search Morano, it's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio, Fans and Haters on Facebook. Well, it's no secret that I am a fan of the film The Godfather. Fifty years ago this year, the world of cinema changed when The Godfather was released. And so much of what made that film so great was the performance of Marlon Brando. And that was very much a comeback role for Marlon Brando. That was the comeback of the decade. And he followed that up that same year with Last Tango in Paris. And uh, Brando was nominated, to no one's surprise that saw the film, for his second Academy Award. And um, Brando had won the Academy Award before. He won in, uh, I think, about 15 years before, I believe, for On the Waterfront. And he accepted that award back in the 50s when he won for On the Waterfront. 
But in 1972, I guess it was 73 because it was a celebration of the films of 1972. In 1973, Brando wins the Academy Award. And instead of accepting it himself, they announced that someone else was going to accept that award on his behalf. The person that was announced as accepting that award on his behalf was Sachin Littlefeather. My name is Sachin Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. And uh, she went on and she was booed by some of the people there. And um, two months ago, I told you about how the Academy of Motion Pictures announced that they were officially apologizing to her for how she was treated. And I usually hate the idea of institutions apologizing for stuff that happened half a century ago. I thought that was the right move uh, because Sachin Littlefeather was still alive and there to receive the apology. And we learned right before the show that um, Sachin Littlefeather has passed away at the age of 75. And I've been trying to get in touch with Sashin Littlefeather for the last couple of years, and I have had no luck in doing so. But she passed away um, at noon on Sunday at her home in the northern California city of Novato, surrounded by her loved ones. She was 26 years old at the time. Beautiful woman. And she was... um, not treated well by the Academy. And I thought it took a lot of courage for her to deal with what she dealt with. And um, she had a very tough, very tough childhood. She was born in 1946, the daughter of an Apache father and a white mother, both of whom were mentally ill and unable to raise her. She was taken away at the age of three and raised by her maternal grandparents. And she remembered, as a small child, hitting her father with a broom to stop him from beating her mother. And she said that's when she became an activist. And that she started visiting reservations in Arizona at the age of 17 after her father had died. She had gone through a lot, and she was really... Um, an incredible woman. Not only a real beauty, she she posed for Playboy. I have the Playboy that she was in. Beautiful woman. But someone who uh, had an incredible sense of humor and an incredible sense of self. And someone that I, honest to God, I really admired. I really did. And you know me. I'm not into political correctness. I'm not into identity politics. But there was something about Sashin Littlefeather and that whole experience at the Academy Awards that I found really impressive. And I guess about seven or six or seven years ago, maybe five or six years ago, I think about five years ago, 
I had the opportunity to interview Sasheen Littlefeather. And one of the things we talked about was her sense of humor. You know, it's surprising. I've gotten uh, the opportunity to chat with you a little bit in the a few days leading up to this interview. And the one thing, I mean, I, I've known you uh, as long as I had any sort of consciousness of, of popular culture. But the one thing that doesn't come across in that 90 seconds that's played of you over and over again and all the media discussion is you actually have quite a sense of humor, which I don't think most uh, Oscar viewers appreciated then or, or currently. Well, uh, I wasn't allowed to uh, speak to anybody practically, you know, on any talk shows after the fact. I was boycotted. So no one knew that I uh, existed practically after the fact. They were so busy gossiping and making up stories about me that no one actually, like Johnny Carson or Dick Cavett or any of the popular talk shows hosts at the time, uh, interviewed me personally. One of the things that I was so interested in when I spoke with her was the nature of her relationship with Marlon Brando. Um, Did they stay in touch? How did Brando pick her? What was the deal? Did they ever meet before? Did they meet after? What was the story with her relationship with Brando? In the run-up to that award uh, presentation, uh, did you have any opportunity to, you know, talk with with Marlon Brando himself? Of course. I was a friend of Marlon Brando's. And and you got the sense that he was just as perturbed, even though he he himself had not necessarily been in the trenches of occupying Alcatraz and things like that. He was just as upset about the treatment of uh, American Indians by the popular culture as you were. Well, Marlon was a very uh, brilliant strategist. Um, he realized that for the first time in history that that uh, Academy Awards was going to be broadcast via satellite to millions of people throughout the world, mm. where it had not been before, previous to that. I didn't realize that. So we used the Academy Awards, or Marlon used it, as a platform to get that word out that Native American Indian people were unemployed in the industry while the stereotype was very much alive and well. But Native American Indian people need jobs within the industry, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, writing, producing, directing, et cetera, et cetera. And that was simply not happening. In in addition to that, we had a real problem in Wounded Knee, South Dakota, where American Indian movement leaders and those fighting for their rights, their civil rights in South Dakota, were going to be taken away because there was a media blackout there. Mm. They were going to be taken away to a place like Guantanamo Bay and never heard from again. Had Marlon not put the spotlight on Wounded Knee during the Academy Awards speech that I made, those people uh, and that media blackout might have continued and they would have been taken away. So... All hell broke loose, so to speak, and the media from everywhere descended upon Wounded Knee. Now, um, I found that so interesting. And whenever you're part of something like this, she was blackballed. She was trying to be an actress, and she was trying to make a career and as a, both an actress and an activist. And she was blackballed after that. Couldn't get any roles. She was kind of a national laughingstock, kind of a punchline. 
And uh, I always said if I ever won an award, that because I kind of befriended her, I never met her in person, but we, we developed a good telephone relationship over the years. And I always said if I won an award, I would do the same thing Brando did and have her go up there and reject the award for me. But um, anyway, I, you always wonder, at least I do, if seeing what happened through the prism of hindsight, if she ever had any doubts about whether or not she did the right thing. Listen to what she says. I heard after the fact of my refusal of the Academy Awards from Martin Luther King's widow, Coretta King, congratulating me on what I did. Wow. I heard from Cesar Chavez congratulating me on what I did. I heard from my own Native American Indian people and leaders congratulating me for what I did up there on that podium. I knew that I had done the right thing. So there you have it, Sasheen Littlefeather. Sorry to see her go. I, uh, I'm sorry I never got to meet her in person uh, because uh, she was really an incredible woman. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Gene is in the Bronx. Hello, Gene. Uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. What I wanted to just get a description of, we spoke about the Japanese wrestler and he passed away of amyloidosis. I was looking it up. I couldn't find anything on it. Uh, So I I was wondering if you could give some kind of a description of it, if that's possible. Yeah, I I don't know much about it, but as I I understand it, it's... um... It's very rare, and it's a uh, it's a buildup of amyloid proteins in the heart, the kidneys, or other organs, and um, it's uh, you know y- y- amyloid proteins. I think is something that everybody has, but um, when there's too much of those amyloid proteins, it creates um, swelling, fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath. Uh, tingling, pain in the hands and the feet, uh, numbness. I, again, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not really an expert, but um, I know it's 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 pretty rare. I, I don't remember ever hearing about somebody else dying of amyloidosis. I'm sure I've I've come across somebody that's passed away from it, but I, I can't remember anybody that has. Yes, I understand. Uh, I, I think it's found in the brains of people that have a high grade of dementia, I think they found a lot of amyloid proteins that would sort of strangulate the neurons in the brain. And they, they thought that that may be the reason why, you know. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I really, I really couldn't say. Uh, but um, it sounds right. like you may be better informed about it than I am, Gene. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I have two things to say, Frank. On the VCR, I'll get to it. But first on, you know, the co-star for that movie with uh, Marlon Brando, Les Tango in Paris, did not live that long a life. I don't know what happened to her, but I was a little surprised because if you look at that movie, she looks, you know, healthy and good shape. Uh, So that's a little strange. Yeah, well, she had said, um, you know, she made some pretty, uh, Maria Schneider, she made some pretty big uh, claims about how she was treated in that uh, in that film. And you're right. Mm -hmm. She passed away in her in her 50s. Um, she said she was actually um, she was 19 at the time, and she said that she was 
actually traumatized by a rape scene in that film, and then she was hounded by all sorts of uh, negative publicity that affected her career after that. So she had a she had a tough time. Right. So it's probably a mistake for her to do that movie. Oh, then. Wow. I would know, think so, one... based on yeah. her own description. Absolutely. Yeah, and the VCR, Frank. Uh, I'm reading this book, Basic Economics, uh, and it's an audio book, but they said that the VCR originally was super expensive at the very beginning, and it didn't get into common usage, so they didn't have it in the, uh, where they calculated, you know, what inflation, it wasn't in that, that group of things that they used to say, well, you know, this is inflation. But that's kind of interesting. It was considered like an, an, a, a luxury item initially when it first came out and super expensive. You're, no, you're right about that. And um, interestingly enough, I remember Rush Limbaugh talked about buying a Betamax VCR back in the 1970s. And it was something like $2,000 at the time. And that's when $2,000 was $2,000. And um, he actually had to go to a bank and get a loan to purchase that VCR. And he had to convince them that because he was on the radio at the time as a DJ, that he needed this for work, which he, of course, didn't. He just really wanted it. And he got that loan from the bank to buy that uh, that $2,000 Betamax VCR, 800-848-9222. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Good morning, Frank. Frank, that you're talking about that nostalgia stuff. Cracker Barrel hit it on the head with that nostalgia stuff what, over 25 years ago with their restaurants, in my opinion. But the thing that I miss about nostalgia is my dad used to have a, a little auto garage, and every month we get the... Uh, the new the new calendar in you know and you know you used to get nude cat pictures on matchbooks covers and the calendars i missed that and i, I think that you know uh, hey ron we're gonna have to end it there i'm sorry up against the top of the hour i uh, appreciate that uh, 800-848-9222 keep asking questions This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. a show to get to uh, for the next hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for listening. So on um, Friday, if you didn't hear any or, or all or any of Friday's program, one of the things that we talked about was some of the music that the contributors of uh, on this program make from time to time. And obviously we've repeatedly played the song live stream what is this song called live streaming the news what is this called live streamed crimes live stream crimes by alex barnard and uh, his band lesbian dance theory 
This is a death metal song, and um, it's doing very well. It's on Spotify. You can just search uh, live stream crimes. And uh, let me hear a few bars of it. Self-absorbed, psychotic, miscreants want to put their faces on your screens. So that's Alex's song. And then Frank Diaz, who uh, does the news on our flagship station, WABC in New York, he uh, had a cover of a Finn Lizzy song. And what's the name of the song again, uh, Matt? Cold Sweat. Cold Sweat. And um, uh, we, we played you a sample of that song, song as well. He played all the instruments as well. You know, I gave um, Alex credit for coming up with an original composition, but I said that, uh, you know, I thought that, you know, Frank's song was just a little bit closer to my taste. It's just more the music that I like to listen to, that genre of music, but I didn't feel like I was the best judge. So we we put up a poll in our Facebook group that Matt Blaze constructed and you can check this out for yourself at uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Matt, what did the poll results show about the popularity of these two songs? Uh, Frank Diaz's song had won by 60-something percent, Okay, I believe. But as I recall, there was check. a pretty low volume of, <laughs> of like, people voting. Yeah, there was only like eight or nine people, and one of them was me. Right, okay. One of them was Alex. Yeah. One of them was Frank Diaz. I see. One of them was you. So it's basically, we could have <laughs> done the poll just yeah, in this room. Yeah, I mean, it was in this room, yeah. pretty much. So anyway, so I was talking with um, Gina Limberopoulos, who works um, at our flagship, 77 uh, WABC in New York, and she's really great. I really like Gina. Um, she's work. She's part of the social media team, and she does a lot of other things. Um, what do you know her formal title? No, it's like something with social media. Right. So we are, we promoted right. her on Friday to senior music analyst for this show because she said, you know, I like everything. She's she's saying to me, she says, I, I like everything. I like uh, you know uh, heavy metal. I like uh, hip hop. I like country. I like every type of music there was. So she had not heard these two songs. So I thought, given Gina's diverse musical tastes, Gina Limberopoulos, now that she's the senior music analyst for our program – she should do a detailed review of um of you know both of these songs and i like Gina a lot she's got a great attitude she's always she's always smiling she's always works she she has a long commute here but she comes here and she's um she's always happy she's always upbeat she's not complaining she's uh, she's always she's just a very pleasant person she's the kind of person that adds to a workplace so i thought um we i'd be curious to know what her review was so i haven't heard this yet but this is her formal review comparing the live stream crimes and the uh, that Frank Diaz cover of the Thin Lizzy song. Without further ado, 
Here is the detailed music criticism from Gina Limberopoulos. All right, resident WABC music aficionado Gina here, and I'm coming at you with our very first track analysis. Now, on Friday, you all had the pleasure of listening to Frank Diaz's cover of Cold Sweat by Thin Lizzy and Alex Barnard's original track, Live Streamed Crimes. I'm here to let you know my unbiased opinion unbiased. on both and who my winner is. I'm going to start off with Frank. Frankie, giving us a cool take on a Thin Lizzy classic. It's giving 80s. It's giving Cobra Kai fight scene montage and a whole lot of nostalgia, which really doesn't make any sense because I was born in 97, so I'm not really sure where that wow. comes from, but I digress. But overall, a solid cover, and I give you credit where it's due. Loved it. Now we got Alex Barnard's live stream crimes. Title is edgy, cool guy, punky Brewster. No, I'm totally kidding. This was a really cool one. Kind of reminded me of like an early Pantera and Megadeth. If they had like a really angsty kid. And I like mean that in the best way. Uh, you don't really get originals that sound like this anymore. So major props on that. And solid vocals too. So after careful consideration and a lot of back and forth with myself over this entire weekend. I've come to my final decision. And my best track is Livestream Crimes. Wow. I'm a punk at heart. What could I say? Good stuff, Alex. My goodness. Uh, I uh, wow. did not see that oh, coming. Well, here to, here to uh, accept this award is uh, Sashin Littlefeather. Uh, no, here actually is Alex Barnard. Wow, congratulations being selected by uh, Gina Limberopoulos. That's high praise. It certainly is. I am very happy with this award. Uh, Gina made clearly the right decision, I would say, first of all. And second of all, I will say that um, I sort of trusted her music taste in that she was uh, the only person at our flagship station, WABC, who had um, who is a self-admitted fan, or the only other person I should say who is a self-admitted fan, let alone had heard of one of my all-time favorite bands, which is Acid Bath. Well, I, I can't say that I've she heard. She said unbiased opinion. Yeah, it is unbiased, right? Yeah. I mean, why isn't it? Why wouldn't why, it be? Why, why is it biased? Why are you accusing, I don't know. Sounds, you're accusing the, them so, of having something going it on? It sounds like something's happening You think there. he was working the ref a little bit? Uh, yeah, I no. think so. I think there was a little uh, payola. You think so? <laughs> I mean, that's sounds a, like it. Are you basing that in anything? That's a pretty That's a pretty hefty yeah. allegation to Well, the way he's just Where's like, well, proof? Gina heard of the my one of my favorite bands, Acid Bath. Who in their right mind ever heard of well, that? That's bath? true. That's true. But uh, plenty of people in their right mind. I mean, have. But just because she's familiar with the kind of music that Alex likes doesn't mean that it's a biased opinion. But can <laughs> it be a biased opinion if she like is into that music and really likes that and heard the and heard the of the band no, that three no. people have heard? Uh, no. Of? Uh, see, you're you're questioning Gina's integrity as senior music analyst, which is uncalled for. Um, she said she likes all this type of music, right? Which is why she's a better judge of it than than me, right? Because I, I'm more into the you know non I'm non death metal. Now that was Frank Diaz's cover version, right? I do have a Frank Diaz original. Shall we keep that and wait for Alex Barnard to put out another song, and then we'll put those well, that's, two against that's each other? That's a good idea. Well, how soon until you can come up with a, another song that we could play? Well. This Friday, I'm dropping the next oh, single. Oh, all right. Album. Okay, oh. good. So we'll preview so on it here. Friday, Friday. Yeah. we'll put them up against each other. The good. world premiere. It's going to be exciting. Like a great idea. Hey, speaking me. of things that may be uh, premiering soon, I, um, you know, I, I was on some emails that I pretty much ignored because it didn't have anything immediately to do 
with stuff that I have to do. And, you know, you, you know, I see emails that I, other than most of the emails that I get are related to the news. Right. But um, sometimes there'll be emails about stuff at the on the show and the workplace. And I just look, is there anything that needs to be done? Excuse me, today or tomorrow? And if there's not, I kind of just move on with my life. So I was on some emails about um, a podcast that um, the uh, three people that aren't named Frank Moreno that work on our show are going to do. And it's Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and uh, and Kenneth. And, uh, I, you know, as I've been leaving in the morning, I see the three of you very hard at work on this. And uh, apparently it's being beta tested now. There's teams of... Uh, there's teams of market research analysts that are that are taking this podcast, which is not yet posted anywhere, and they're showing it to different groups to get their feedback on things that need to be need to be done. Um, explain to me what this is exactly, Alex. This this podcast that you guys have been working on. What is this? I mean, basically, um, Blaze and I and uh, Kenny had the idea to do something that was kind of like the Stern Post show. Okay, fair um, enough. Right, okay. Breaking down some topics that uh, you talked about on the show that um, maybe we would like to voice our opinion okay. on. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. That's a, a good concept, I think, right? Um, so, <laughs> evidently, somehow Curtis ends up getting an email that's intended for the people on this show about this podcast, even though, first of all, I don't even have anything to do with this podcast, but um, Curtis has less than nothing to do with this podcast, and yet, inadvertently, Curtis Lewa, who is the, obviously the founder of the Guardian Angels, former Republican candidate for mayor of New York City, has had an illustrious career in the public sector, both on radio and elsewhere. So he is mistakenly included on this email chain. I mean, they say it's a mistake, you know, I'm a little bit of a conspiracist, right? I have to think that there were some elements of the radio deep state that included Curtis on this email intentionally just because they knew what this was going to do. <laughs> so Curtis on his program, which airs on WABC overnights on the weekends, he takes it upon himself with his telephone talent coordinator, Avery, who I have to mention, Avery's worked on this show before. He is the worst telephone talent coordinator, uh, certainly that we have here now, but maybe ever that I've ever worked with. I'm not willing to say ever, but maybe ever, maybe ever. And the two of them have quite a chuckle, not only at the expense of uh, of Kenneth, Matt Blaze, and, uh, and Alex Barnard, but at my expense. Now, what did I do? I have nothing to do with this podcast. And yet these, these two heckle and jekyll here feel the need to to attack me. Now, this is a little bit of Curtis and Avery commenting on this email that Curtis mistakenly received over a, a few days ago. He made a big mistake because Avery circumvented an email to yours truly. And this means war. War against Matt Meany, war against the worst side of the other side of midnight as opposed to our side, which is the best of the other side of midnight. Listen to this. Hey, team. When I met with the overnight crew on Friday, we came up with an idea for a podcast relating to the show. Now, Matt Meany didn't meet with you, did he, Avery? Did he meet with you, huh? Huh? You're part of the overnight crew, right? Did he, did he have a sit down with you? Nope. Uh, 
Let me ask you a question, Broadway. Bill Lee, did he uh, have a sit-down with you? No. And he didn't have a sit-down with me, that's for sure. So clearly, his focus, his attention, is completely on those who work for the Frank Morano portion of The Other Side of Midnight. He said, the concept is to have Frank's team, Blaze, Alex, and Kenny, tape five or so minutes after every show talking about what Frank discussed on the show and give some insight to what is going on behind the scenes with the show. (laughs) Well, first off, it's like Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing. (laughs) So what do you do? Have an additional five minutes where you discuss the nothingness of the Frank Morano show? Let me interject here, first of all. I am I am flattered at the comparison to Seinfeld. Seinfeld is one of the most successful television programs of all time. And 24 years, 23 years after it's off the air, people are still watching it and enjoying it. You know what? This show is exactly like Seinfeld. You know why? Because it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And people are going to be listening to broadcasts of this show decades from now, just as they do with Seinfeld. So Curtis and Avery... um, they can poo-poo the Seinfeldian aspect of this show all they want, but I'm proud of that comparison. I know Curtis means it as an insult, but I take it as a compliment. Of a show that nobody will watch based on another show that nobody will listen to. Exactly. <laughs> Make no sense. Now, wait, wait. It gets better, ladies and gentlemen. This is deep. Oh, boy. Uh, and they would like it if Frank, you know, oh, my God. <laughs> You know, Frank could occasionally pop in and be heard on one of the segments each week as if Frank Morano is so busy. First of all, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to compare my schedule to anyone else's? I will, including Curtis. Now, Curtis is a busy guy. There is nobody on the planet, maybe John Katsimatidis. Other than John, there is nobody busier than I am. Nobody, nobody. I, um, and Curtis knows this, right? Curtis knows what it's like to try and get me on the phone. God forbid he needs something, right? And then, you know, he'll put up, uh, he'll send out an APB trying to get in touch with me if I, if I don't call him back within 40 seconds. My goodness, he's mocking my schedule. I am a busy person. I am. An opportunity to actually sort of uh, convey his point on this. What is it, five minutes, Avery? Yeah, but now you can't even give your true thoughts because he's going to be standing right over your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to listen every four hours, you know, to Frank Morano with the other side of midnight so you can rat him out. <laughs> so each Friday we can produce each segment together as a team. We got the okay from Chad on this and would like to do dry runs this week and then launch it officially next week. Imaging-wise, we are thinking of having it called The Other Side of Midnight, but not, rather call it The Dark Side of Midnight. (laughs) Now, uh, I think he's a little confused, Matt Meany. Maybe he was drinking some Thunderbird, some Midnight Express, some uh, Mad Dog 2020. Because there's not a black man or black woman as part of the Frank Morano crew. Hey, Kurt, they found, they took the whitest show around and through alchemy somehow made a whiter show (laughs) (laughs) they're gonna call it the dark side of midnight the dark side of midnight it's like hang on hang on a second hang on i don't think what but with first of all i had nothing to do with the naming I, i had nothing to do with any of this i didn't even care about this until until five minutes ago 
Um, but when you guys come up with the term the dark side of midnight or the darker side of midnight, it's not supposed to be a racial thing, right? No, not at all. It's supposed to be a like, darker subject matter, I guess, right? Right. Well, it's it's like an unfiltered look okay, right. of right. our assessment and of yeah. the post-show. So wh- That's why, why. why are these two bringing race into the, the darker side of midnight podcast? I have no idea. Yes, neither do they. Neither do they. No, they don't. What goes on here on the weekend? I don't understand it. I don't understand it. What else did these two have to say? Thanksgiving, could I have dark meat, please? No white meat, dark meat. You know, you can't cosmetically cover up the fact that they got no brothers and sisters by simply renaming it the dark side of midnight. See, I, I, you know, I wonder at times, because I've seen Avery's call screening ability or lack thereof, what, how does Avery get on such a popular show? Because Curtis's show is popular. And I've, I've figured it out because Avery is the only one willing to laugh at Curtis's humor. No one else would be sitting there laughing. If there was any other person there, you, it would be just a tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. Nobody laughing. But because Avery's willing to humor Curtis, he sees where his bread is buttered, right? And he's able to... You know, he's able to stick around in that telephone talent coordinator position. Well, I didn't care about this darker side of uh, Midnight Podcast at all until until Curtis felt the need to mock it. Now, all of a sudden, I'm interested in hearing it, and I, I hope that it's good. When is that? What's the deal with this, Matt? When can we look forward to a public posting of this? What's, what's, the, deal? what's the deal? Well, we're going to record every morning. It's not going to be five minutes. It's going to be a little longer than that. It's probably going to be somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's going to be our assessment. Uh, we're going to a post-show of The Other Side of Midnight, and we're going to talk about what was talked about here, what you talked about over on the course of the entire show. We're going to pick certain, not every topic, but certain topics we're going to comment on and give our assessment and why maybe why we didn't talk about it during the show or... Uh, our, our own little take, our own little opinion about what you had talked about. And then we're well, going to do uh, one. So what's the timetable for us being able to hear this? Uh, I would say by the end of the week, there should be at least one up. Uh, we've done a few, like we said, dry runs. And uh, we're hoping to get it up. We're going to get some imaging. And uh, once it's available, then it will be posted the morning of the show. All so. Right. Let's say if we do one today, we're, I don't know that we're going to post today's, but it'll be posted the same morning. Uh, so they'll go together. And that's uh, how it's going to work. Got it. Okay. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Curtis's uh, new mem- nemesis, uh, minority leader uh, Joseph Borelli, uh, who I think is going to be on the Bernie and Sid show today, is SMS text messaging me. You could imagine he's got quite a few Choice words for Curtis listening to um, to this whole thing. Uh, you, I mentioned uh, Joe in, uh, earlier, by the way. Uh, we had a couple of very, very competitive ping pong matches over the weekend. And, you know, you heard me talking about that Eden air purifier. Joe comes into my house in the basement, which, which up until a week ago smelled of must. And he says, wow, it smells great in here smells so clean and that's all due to this little air purifier uh but i don't want to do a commercial here it's but it's true it really did make a difference 800-848-9222 uh steve is in manhattan hello steve 
Well, Curtis loves to play the race card. He's, he's actually morphed into the other guy that had that position a year ago. And uh, the thing with any kind of metal music, you, you'll hear people instinctively say, oh, I hate it, I don't like it, even though they don't listen to it. It's just like people who are phonies and claim to be conservatives. The thing, But the thing today is uh, it's trendy. American people are very trendy. You guys talking about you're going to have your little thing at the, uh, at the end of the show, 15, 20 minutes. I think you guys should really sit down and talk about Patrick J. Buchanan, the, the greatness of that man. There's an interview with Bob Schaefer from CBS News from I don't know how many years ago. He's interviewing Pat Buchanan when he was running for president. Just listen to Pat Buchanan. Listen to this man speak, but exchange the word Japan for China. It was obviously it was like 25, 30, 35 years ago. It was Japan. There was a very big into our markets and dumping a lot of stuff here. This man is a phenomenal man. He's a genius. And he just came out with a column recently. And we know Pat is getting up on age. And um, the thing is, he um, wrote a column just a few days ago that must be read by anybody who really is considered to be a conservative Republican. Don't be fooled today by any of these people because they, and now I'm going to get hung up on, I know that, but they believe in open borders, the Republican Party and the phony conservatives. They love this invasion of America. They love legal immigration, legal immigration. This is what has rebuilt the Democratic Party, the leftist Democratic Party today. Just look at the numbers inside the Democratic Party nationally and in the big right, cities. Steve, I think you're a little off topic. I, I, you know, look, there's no bigger fan of Pat Buchanan than me, but um, it is Bob Schieffer, not Bob Schaefer. Jimmy is in Oyster Bay. Hello, Jimmy. Jimmy! Uh, Jimmy has other priorities. All right, uh, we're going to try and give somebody an opportunity to win some money. If you want to be the, if you are the seventh caller, to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We're going to let you play the thousand dollar minute. You're going to get sixty seconds to answer ten trivia questions, and I have to tell you, these are pretty easy questions. There's one question number ten is difficult, but. If you're, I'd say, over the age of 55, it's not impossible, okay? Everything else is easy. There's no excuse for not getting these questions. 800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller. You can call in straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Just gonna stand there and watch me burn. Well, that's alright because I like the way it hurts. Just gonna stand there and hear me cry. Well, that's alright because I love the way you lie. I can't tell you what it really is. I can only tell you what it feels like. And right now it's a steel knife in my windpipe. I can't breathe, but I still fight. Well, I can fight. As long as the wrong feels right, it's like I'm in flight. High off a law, drunk from my hate. It's like I'm huffing pain. I love her the more I suffer. I suffocate right before I'm about to drown. She resuscitates me. She hates me. That's Eminem 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Um, see, now I, I've lost some of the... See, you know, the danger... The, the nice thing about a laptop or a computer of any type, when you use that for your notes and everything, is it's all on there, right? Um, so I've been doing the best we can not using this laptop today because I forgot my charger home. But now that means I'm buried in a sea of paper, and I cannot find all of my notes as to, you know, because you have one. Okay, okay, here we go. All right. Um, so that's that. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to get to your calls in just a bit. Uh, but first, we're going to see if we can give some money away. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moreau. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to today's contestant, Dave and Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm doing great. Dave, you know how to uh, you know how to play this game, right? You've done it before. I know how to play the game, yes. I'm very familiar with Wonderful. it. Wonderful. All right. Uh, if you're ready, let's get started. Let's go. Okay. What dress-up holiday takes place in October? Halloween. What cartoon featured a feuding cat and mouse? Feuding cat and mouse. Feuding cat and mouse. Yeah, cartoon. Cat and mouse used to fight with one another. Two names. Blank and blank. Blank and blank. I I don't know. All right, it's Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry, Dave. You never watched Tom and Jerry? Many years ago. All right, all right. Dave, get Dave's information. We'll send him something. Maybe that's a more difficult question than I realized. I don't think it is. It is not. It's not. not. It's not. not. Okay. Okay. Uh, Because sometimes, you know, um, the caller, a caller, uh, I think it was a gentleman from Brooklyn. Maybe it was Larry or uh, Charles. I don't remember who. But he, (laughs) he said, essentially, keep in mind that not everybody is as smart as you are. Right. I mean, he didn't mean it that he didn't say it that way, but he said not everybody's a Bernard McGurk or a Frank Morano. Not everyone knows what you do. So I, I have intentionally been trying to make these questions easier. And I think Tom and Jerry is a pretty easy response. Anybody who's watched the cartoon in the last 60 years has seen Tom and Jerry. But a cat and mouse. Right. That fight with each other. A cartoon. It's I mean, not Felix the cat. It's not Mighty Mouse. It's a cartoon, Cat and Mouse, Tom and Jerry. I don't think that's too difficult. It's not at okay. all. That's disappointing. All right. Um, I bet you. I bet you one thing. Okay. Now that you've heard us talk about Tom and Jerry, at some point today or tomorrow, you are going to hear somebody mention Tom and Jerry, or you're going to see them on television over the course of the next day or two. So last week, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, my wife and I are talking about uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, 
That's what she says. She brings up, I don't remember the context. She brings up Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And the you know, the the film Dick Van Dyke. And I said, I am I said, do you know who wrote the book Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? And I said, she said, no. I said, you are going to be, as soon as I tell you who it is, you are going to be simultaneously astonished and not surprised at all. That's what I said. Do you know who wrote it? Do you know who wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Okay. Um, So I'm going to say the same thing to you. So this book, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, was written by Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming. You you know who Ian Fleming is, right? Matt plays. Yeah, who's double, Ian Fleming? Right, he wrote the James Bond books, right? So Rachel didn't know. She knows who James Bond is. Rachel did not know who Ian Fleming was. She said, you know, and I think a lot of people my age probably don't know who Ian Fleming is. Maybe she's right. Maybe she's wrong. But that was the conversation we had Wednesday or Thursday of next, last week. Within forty eight hours. Of that conversation, we're watching Jeopardy. Final Jeopardy, um, I think it was Friday night. Final Jeopardy was some clue about um, authors. And we both try to guess. And I said, I know what that answer is. And she said, what is it? I said, it's Ian Fleming. She said, you're kidding. We were just talking about Ian Fleming. What are the chances? So I said... It's synchronicity. This happens to me all the time. All the time. This happens. So, <clears throat> yesterday, Sunday, my wife is doing a random British accent. And she says something to the effect of, oh, Charlie bit my finger. Something like that. And I recognize that she's doing a British accent, but it sounds kind of juvenile. And I said, uh, what is that from? Is that from Mary Poppins? Because I've seen Mary Poppins, but I haven't seen it in decades. So I don't really know the film as well as she does. So she says, no. That's from that famous viral YouTube video. I said, what viral YouTube video? She said there's this whole viral video, a few years old, called Char- uh, about uh, Charlie Bit My Finger. You never saw it? I said, no. Not only have I never saw it, I never heard of it. Then... Reading the Wall Street Journal. She leaves the house to go run some errands. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. This is the first sentence of an article. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. It's a book review. I'm reading the book review section. This is the first sentence of the article. You ready? Um, is the world a better place because... Charlie Bit My Finger exists. That's the first sentence. And it goes on to say, the amateur video clip of a toddler biting his older brother's finger has been viewed hundreds of millions of times on the YouTube and is arguably one of the best-known pieces of footage on Earth. I had never seen this video. I'd never heard of this video. I knew nothing about this video. And, you know, I pay close attention to the news. I'd never read any articles about this video. And yet, Literally within 20 to 30 minutes of my wife mentioning this video that it existed, I read in the paper. So it was not like some electronic algorithm fed this to me after hearing it detected on my smartphone. I read this article in the paper referencing the very same video 
that she referenced. And sure enough, uh, apparently this is a very popular video, and many of you may be familiar with... <laughs> Charlie. Charlie bit me. Very popular. I've never seen it, and it said it's it's short, but aside from that four seconds, I've still never seen any of it. And it got me wondering about coincidences like this. And I have always been a big believer in the law of attraction. And when you put thoughts out there into the world, I really do think that they come back to you. And they call this um, synchronicity, right? Um, Synchronicity, the definition of it, is the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. And basically, it's exactly the kind of phenomenon that I just described, where you talk about something, you experience something, and then all of a sudden, you see that same thing, right? And there's a lot of theories as to why this is the case. Um, but ultimately, I guess it all is still just coincidences. So you think he stole it? I admit nothing. Will you put that cigarette out, please? Well, I mean, he was in the apartment, and then it's gone, and it's in your apartment. Maybe you think we're in cahoots. No, no, but it's quite a coincidence. Yes, that's all a coincidence. Big coincidence. That's a big coincidence. A coincidence. No, that's a big coincidence. That's what the coincidence is. There are no small coincidences and big coincidences. No, there are degrees of coincidences. No, there are only coincidences. Ask anyone. Other big coincidences and small coincidences are just coincidences. Well, well. Now, that's, of course, from Seinfeld. Very great episode, by the way. So I became obsessed with this today or the last 24 hours. What causes these coincidences? And there are a lot of theories. Some are weird. Some are probable. One uh, by uh, a someone named Carl Jung talks about the unconscious mind connections. And Jung published proof supporting his concept of synchronicity in a book co-authored by a physical theorist. And in it, he recounts the story of the golden scarab beetle, a piece of jewelry, and the coincidence of a scarab beetle appearing at the window. He proposed the account, and others like it, are due to a mysterious connection between the person's psyche and the world of matter. I'm curious, one, has this happened to you? Two, I'm curious what you think the cause of this is, because it happens to me all the time, all the time. Another one is just um, confirmation bias, right? Scientists, those people that study um, psychological, emotional, cultural, social effects, they say that synchronicity rests on confirmation bias. What that means is that our brains are wired in a way that we lean towards noticing or believing something that confirms our ideas and we ignore those that don't. So maybe maybe I'm just noticing Ian Fleming's name come up because we just talked about him. 
Maybe Ian Fleming's name would have come up the same way had I not just mentioned him. Maybe I would have read that article and not knowing what Charlie Bites the Finger is, I just would have went on to the next sentence. Here's another one. And I think this is interesting. And I give this a little bit of credence. That there are many worlds or there's a multiverse that quantum physics ignites this theory that many worlds or a multiverse exists to explain meaningful coincidences. The numerous possible universes occur parallel and somehow they can mesh or you may come to a crossroads of possible future scenarios. Um, There's a sci-fi depiction in the 2015 Synchronicity The parallel universes and time dimensions that collide result in uncanny experiences or synchronicities. Another is spiritual signs. Could it be the universe, angels, or God reaching out to us? Another is I'll I'll characterize as X-File theories. Is it ghouls, ghosts, or spirits playing tricks on you? Six, this theory is that maybe it's a loved one who's passed away. A loved one is sending you messages from the other side. They're acting in your interest to try and tell you something. Now, I don't think there are any loved ones trying to tell me a message about Charlie Bit Your Finger or Ian Fleming. So I I am not in I'm not going with that. Seven is whether there's an invisible energy force. And this is kind of my view with the law of attraction that I've always subscribed to. Hindus consider synchronicities manifest from Brahman or the energy that connects everything in the universe. Energy comes from tiny atoms vibrating. And one idea is that synchronicities occur when energy forces are in harmony or in sync with one or in uh, sync with one another. Another one is you're just going crazy. I know. I don't think I'm going crazy. Another one. Look, we've covered this before. The idea that we're living in a computer simulation like the Matrix. Could it be fate? Could it be psychic abilities? Could it be alien contact? Could it be something else? 800-848-9222. What's your take on this? There's a YouTube channel called The Modern Intuitionist, which uh, Alex Barnard um, misspelled on my cut sheet to be The Modern Institutionist. So now I'm wondering, since he happened to misspell it that way, Am I going to encounter the word institutionist somewhere today or tomorrow? I wonder. But there's a YouTube channel called The Modern Intuitionist. And there's this video all about the world of synchronicity. One of the most common ways to dismiss an idea is to say it's just a coincidence. But how do we know if something really is a coincidence? It's something that even scientists struggle with. When you think of a scientist, you probably imagine a very logical person, someone who accepts facts and observation above all else. But that's not always the case. Now, um, by the way, speaking of YouTube, that video, uh, my interview with Sasheen Littlefeather that I did five or six years ago, to this day, even before she passed away, is the most downloaded and viewed thing I've ever done. And I've interviewed some interesting people over the years. But on the YouTube now, that is by far, far and away, by thousands, by tens of thousands, the most downloaded thing I've ever seen. 
uh, that uh, that I've ever done that I've uploaded it. If you want to listen to the entirety of my interview with Sasheen Littlefeather, I've linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Well, they get into this video, the modern intuitionist, about how even science deals with these synchronicities. You know, you're familiar with the concept of continental drift, how the continents all used to be one. Well, apparently, synchronicity played a role even in that. Try to remember the first time you looked at a picture of the Earth. You probably noticed that it looked a lot like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that fit together. They look like this because at one point, they were all connected in one supercontinent called Pangaea about 100 million years ago. And over time, the pieces broke apart and moved away from each other to create the world as we see it today. This idea is called continental drift. This seems obvious to us now, but there was a time when it wasn't obvious to everyone, and it wasn't obvious to most scientists. In the early 1900s, almost no one believed that continents could move or shift around. To explain this, many scientists believe that there was once a huge bridge of land that connected Africa and South America, a bridge that somehow disappeared without a trace. But a German geophysicist named Alfred Wegener believed that Africa and South America seemed to fit together like puzzle pieces precisely because they were connected at one point in one huge mass of land. To test his theory, Wegener looked at the rocks and fossils on the coasts of Africa and South America, and he found that they were remarkably similar. In 1912, he published his findings in his theory of continental drift. You'd think that the scientific community embraced all this evidence, but they didn't. Most scientists dismissed it as just a coincidence. In fact, the idea was so controversial and scientists were so threatened by Wegener's findings that the American Association of Petroleum Geologists held a forum for the sole purpose of trying to tear down the continental drift theory, all because it didn't fit their worldview. Think about that for a second. Scientists, people we expect to be logical and driven by facts, all got together to reject an idea just because they didn't like it even though there was a huge amount of evidence to support that it was true. And they did this even though it's something so obvious that even a child could notice. It wasn't until the 1950s, almost 40 years later, that the scientific opinion began to change and the scientific community began to accept Wegener's continental drift concept. What this shows is that the fact that South America and Africa look like puzzle pieces that fit together wasn't a coincidence at all. The history of science is filled with examples just like this. And this alone should make us skeptical mm-hmm. whenever so-called experts dismiss something as just a coincidence. In the words of the Nobel Prize winning physicist Percy Williams Bridgman, coincidence is what you have left over after you've applied a bad theory. And this shouldn't be all that surprising because according to German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as self-evident. And what this suggests is that we should be very careful about immediately dismissing things 
as mere coincidence. And it also has important implications for many of the things we experience in our everyday lives, things we might be tempted to dismiss as just a coincidence. So I think this is really interesting, and I'm going to look at getting some expert guests on this to analyze some of the theories. By the way, did you know what Alex Barnard came in while I was playing that clip and said? Do you know what he said? Yeah. So the gentleman that just wrote the institutionalist on my cut sheet instead of the intuitionist felt the need during the show to come in and explain to me that the guy that I just called Carl Jung was actually Carl Jung. Now, can I ask the question, how in the world does that change your understanding of the story that we're we're talking about? And does Alex not have a mirror that he just gave me the wrong word on the cut sheet? And he, I don't know. He what feels the I need know? to say young. Shouldn't that be the kind of thing that's reserved for the darker side of the other side of Midnight Podcast afterwards? And this, the, and this will be. This will be, yes. <laughs> My goodness. All right, very quickly, what's it all about, Alfie? Uh, Paul in Maryland, what do you think? Hi, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, you know, it's all, it sounds all real, real metaphysical to me. But... Uh, but if you had like two um, like parallel universes, uh, kind of like Bizarro World from Seinfeld, mm-hmm. and then you know somehow or another, either one of them like sometimes uh, they just seem to I don't know what you want to call it bleed into one or one another. So that's what you think the most likely scenario is as to why this keeps happening. Well, I tell you, I think it's all. Sounds rather metaphysical to me. This this discussion, but the uh, I think that at the end of it, probably it's uh, or you know I hate to use that expression too, but it just seems to be probably uh, truly coincidence. And maybe you're just you just know so many things and do so many things that they just seem to be uh, happening more frequently well, with you. That's possible. It's possible, Paul. Uh, Matt in the Bronx, and we're going to do a longer segment on this if you don't get to. Call in on this. Matt in the Bronx, very quickly. Yeah, um, there were just, I, I wanted to relate two incidents that actually happened to me. One years ago, um, I was, uh, after reading a lot of nonfiction books and decided that I uh, wanted to read some fiction, and uh, I decided that I would read War and Peace. And so for a few days, I was thinking about picking up this book, and it was always on my mind where would I get it from a library, used bookstore, et cetera. So I was with family at the Ren Fair up in Tuxedo, New York, and I look and I see a book over on the table, and I said, what is this book doing here? And I walk over there, and lo and behold, it was War and Peace. Wow. Matt, Matt, uh, that's wild. Um, We're going to have to save your second uh, synchronicity story for when we revisit this, either tomorrow or later in the week, because I am interested in it, but we're out of time, and shame on me for bringing this up so late in the show. But we're going to revisit this either tomorrow or a little later in the week. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. 15 seconds. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Doug in Manhattan. Alex corrected you with Jung. I'm correcting Alex. It's not Roosevelt. It's two syllables, Roosevelt. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. Of course it's Roosevelt. Uh, Mike in Staten Island. 
Okay, so with your 15 seconds of fame, your questions are as hard as being able to get raccoon membership. But what's easy is getting lunch at Dino and Sons. Neil on Staten Island. If you're on Medicare and you travel outside the United States, you must take out travel insurance. Medicare will not cover you medically if you're injured or you fall and get hurt. You'll pay the full amount of money out of your pocket. Fred and Yonkers. Hey, Frank, this synchronicity has got to have something to do with Jeopardy. A day after losing the $1,000 minute on your cat's name, your cat's name was a Jeopardy question. We want the flory dories. We want the flory dories. Mike. Tomorrow, Frank. Uh, calling from Myrtle Beach. I'll be a snowbird down here for six months. I'll tell you what, always a good show. And I finally got word from my good sister, Carol, that mom is doing okay, my 90 year old mother. And all the people who have friends and relatives in Florida, thoughts and prayers. And speaking of that, I said it before, I'll say it again. Class act Bernie like you. Thoughts and prayers for Bernie. Thoughts and prayers for Bernie. Thank you. Uh, Paul. Good morning, Frank. Listen, there are no coincidences. Everything in this life happens for a reason. And I'm too positive about that. About that. Everything happens for a reason. E. Frank. Yes, I want to say to the listening audience this. J-E-T-S. Jets. 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 And Greg. Sherry. Hi, thank you. Uncharacteristically gifted things for me to hear on the radio. I will be tuning in tomorrow night to hear about Synchronicity. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. Thanks for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. We're going to have some of our listeners in studio tomorrow for uh, our panel discussion with our other side of Governor's Island winners. So that's going to be one for the book. That'll be interesting. Until then, Frank Moreno, good day.